0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Improv TX Comedy Network. If this is your first time checking out the Podcast Network, we appreciate it. Please head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes, and give the Improv TX Comedy Network a like. And just a reminder, the Improv TX Comedy Network is live on YouTube with all your favorite comedians on the improv stage. All links can be found in the description. And with that, on to the podcast. Podcast. Hey everybody welcome to the act out from open mic to the big stage comedians tell us how stories were made My name is duck today. We have the best guest ever. I'm gonna load this up right away. This guy is amazing Let's do the accolades. I feel like we need to do that You've appeared on last comic standing season 5 the Ellen DeGeneres show the winner of Wendy's clean comedy challenge And in 2007 he won an Emmy for writing on the comedy show DFW 10. Not only that this guy is my sensei He is my teacher he brought the comedy to me and he taught me how to do the comedy. It's Dean Lewis. Dean, how are you doing today? Sir? I'm
1: doing great, Ducky. Good to be here.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. This is so cool. Real quickly, everyone know Dean is going to be holding a class on February 27th. So definitely want to sign up for that. If you've ever wanted to do stand up, you're interested, but you're not sure how to get into it. Dean's going to shave five to 10 years off your career.
1: Yeah. So well, he's thanks been, for saying that. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's it's amazing. I took the class and it was life changing. And then you get to do a show at the end of it. So. Right.
1: So it's six weeks, and you learn how to write and perform. Because as you know, Ducky, I'm real big on stand up. Isn't just about writing material. It's about performing and all these performance techniques. And then when you're done, we do a showcase here at the lovely Addison Improv. Yes. And you get a six-minute set. If you do the work in the workshop, you usually get eight to ten minutes of material.
0: It was a blast. And the first time I got to go on stage was on this stage. so I love that. It was so amazing. But, Dean, let's talk about you. I worked at this comedy club for a long time. But you also worked at this comedy club for a long
1: time. I've done a ton of stuff at this comedy club. Yeah, I started. So I don't know if you've talked about this before. I'll just say, you know, the Improvs, there was like no comedy in Dallas. There was one place called the Comedy Corner and then all of a sudden in the late late 80s there was a funny bone that popped up and we we're like oh and but then the improv the improv i mean that's the the key to everything right came to town and they had one in Dallas and then they opened one in Addison and you may not know this but this club used to be open for lunch really because Addison at one point they said you could eat at a different place every day in Addison and not eat at the same place for a year and a half there were so many restaurants and so the improv was like let's let's have lunch and so that lasted for about 2 weeks <laughs>
0: Did they do comedy at the same time? No, it was just,
1: it was just, they were trying, they really had, if memory serves me, I think they had like an executive menu, and it's like, we don't serve this stuff at night, and this, you know, it's like they were kind of a steakhouse sort of thing. I may be mixing this up with something else, but, you know, they pitched it for about two weeks, but then it was just, you know, people don't think improv restaurant, even though, as I always say, this, you know, this whole comedy thing, you're in the liquor business. I mean, everywhere you perform, there's always a two drink minimum, right? Right. Even at church shows, there's a two <laughs> body of Christ minimum. But it just didn't hit. And I think it was two or three weeks and they just, you know, they put it to bed. But yeah, the improv used to be a lunch, that restaurant for lunch and stuff. So did
0: you work here during that time? Yeah, so
1: I was here during that time and I was a bartender. But what I did, and this is advice, I don't know if you have what the mix is of your audience, if it's comics listening or just simple layman, the muggles. But um, <laughs> my best advice to anyone who wants to do stand-up, and you know this, is get a job at a comedy club because you're around everybody. And you get to see how it actually works. And you get to see, you know, I used to pick up the comics at the airport. That was one of my jobs I volunteered for. I used to pick them up and drive them back. So I was in the car for an hour with so-and-so, you know, just a ton of them.
0: Well, like you just said off air, Seinfeld, you know. Seinfeld. Uh, Ellen, I mm-hmm. think. Who else? You've told me a bunch of different people that you drove. Dennis Miller. Can yeah. I tell the Dennis Miller story? Yes, Yes. You know, please. and
1: I know he's gone real political and he's very right wingish and everything. But at the time, he was a hero of mine. He was just phenomenal. You know, he was doing Weekend Update, and he was this hip, very different comic, and he had a great special and everything. He came in, like, it was him and Dana Carvey. They were both here. Dana Carvey was, like, at the Dallas Club for two nights, and then one night here in Addison, and Dennis Miller only did the Dallas Club. But anyway, Dennis Miller had just gotten married. I think his wife's name is Allie. I think that's her name. Like, I'm going to see him at lunch. He's going, hey, babe, that's not her name. What are you doing? <laughs> So they went to go pick her up. They went to go pick them up at the airport, and his flight was delayed. So the guy who picked them up, picked her up, said, "Let me take you back to the condo, and then I'll come back and pick him up." Well, his plane landed earlier than they thought, and he called the club. He was ticked off because he's was getting mob. You know, he's a big star at the time because of SNL. So he was just, you know tearing him a new one and so apparently he was kind of persnickety the whole time like the club was having a hard time handling him and i saw his sets it was amazing and just as a little history so dana carvey came in a, a night early and dennis miller was doing his last show on a saturday night and dana carvey started heckling him as dennis miller because <laughs> you know he used to do dennis miller's like a great setup babe like he's like carvey is that you and so they brought carvey on stage and they did like a minute or two together the audience was insane again yeah. it's a dallas improv it was about 250 people And Ed Yeager, who's a great comic, another mentor of mine, but also a great television writer, he was hosting. And this was a great lesson. So as soon as they walked off stage, Ed goes up on stage. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the most amazing night. You paid for Dennis Miller. You got to see Dana Carvey. Do you guys want to stay for 10 more minutes? Because here's their friend, Steve Martin. And the place
2: went insane. (laughs) And he goes, no, I'm just joking with you. Thank you. Good night. It
1: was so great. But anyway, so that night... I was taking the bartender, taking the bank into the managers. And they were actually in an argument who was going to take him and his wife to the airport in the morning. Neither wanted wanted to hang out with him. So I was like, I'll do it. And they're like, yeah, don't be late. And tell us if anything goes wrong. So I picked them up. And I get there. It's the Doubletree Hotel on Central, you know, where the back door used to be, ironically, before they were there. But that was the place. So I got there at like 5 to 8. And I go to the front desk. I was wearing my improv sweatshirt so they know I wasn't some psycho. And I said, here, I'm, I'm here to pick up Dennis Miller. I'm with the improv. And they're like, oh, he already checked out. And Ducky, I was like, oh, my God, my life is over. Because I was working at the club to get into comedy, you know, dancing around that, not actually performing, but just feeling like I'm learning the insides. And as soon as they said that, I, I turned around and I was like, you know, this is before cell phones and everything. I'm like, what do I do? And the doors open, and his, him and his wife walked out. So they checked out in the room, but they hadn't left. So I walked home. I said, hi, Mr. Miller from the Improv. I'm here to take you and your wife to the club. He goes, yeah, that's great. You know, he's kind of standoffish. And I was like, maybe this wasn't a good idea. (laughs) So I have a a Toyota Corolla. And so we get in. And she gets in the front seat with me. And he sits in the back seat, which just seems odd for newlyweds, right? And I had, like, light jazz on. And I had the AC. I was in the middle of July. And I said, hey, uh, let me know if the air is too cold or the music's too loud. And he goes, yeah, you know, the air's too loud and the music's too cold. <laughs> and she just rolls her eyes. And I was like, ah.
2: it's
1: tense. I yeah? mean, you've hung around some comics and they're yes. big and you think, oh, but they're not. They're, they don't let you in, right? Yes. So we're just driving and kind of talking. And then she said something and he jumped forward and hugged her. He says, look at you, babe. You're driving me crazy in front of the kid here. I just went for it. I said, hey, you know, I, I heard you guys just got back from your honeymoon and I know it's all fresh. I said, if you guys want to the back seat and just screw till I get to the airport, to the terminal, <laughs> that's fine with me. And his face changed and he popped up he goes, What'd you say? And I said it again and he goes, Oh man. So he started, so we started talking and we had this great conversation. But at the end, he said, You know, you got the chops, kid. You should do it. Oh, that's all you need, right? Yeah. So, like roughly a year later, he came back and I opened for him. I was opening at the improv and I got to open for him. And I told, and he was again very standoffish and I told him that story. He goes, yeah, I don't remember that at all. And he walked off. <laughs> so we didn't hang or anything. But um, And then one time, like two years later, I did a corporate show. And he came up and he started talking to me like he knew me. like So I don't – I seri- Ducky, how many guys do these comedians see going from club to club to right. club over a two-year period? I'm sure not. But he just seemed – he like beelined towards me because I was opening and then the CEO was up doing jokes and a roast. And it was horrible as it always is for a corporate event. Which you love because it's so easy to follow. Um, and he came up, he goes, has anyone cussed yet? I said, no, It's we're, I'm supposed to be clean, the CEO. And he goes, well, F. You know, he says <laughs> F <laughs> and walks off in a huff. <laughs> and he gets up on stage and he starts right away. He's just blue as can be. You yeah. Know? But, you know, I think he's a wordsmith. And, you know, you know this. Yeah, oh, yeah. Some people cuss and you're like, well, that's just a cheap gimmick. And some people are like, yeah, you're a master of the art. And it's a pleasure to hear how you use, you cool? know. That's my Dennis Miller story. That's
0: an awesome story. That's why I was so excited to have you on, because you have amazing stories, especially how you ended up overcoming your fear and getting on stage and doing it. It's like one of my favorite stories of all time. Yeah. What's Um, the story? (laughs) uh, (laughs) The defensive driving.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when I got started, I finally got started doing open mics and stuff, and I would take the mic out of the stand, and I had a friend who called me the Sperminator. (laughs) And the reason is, when I held the microphone, I was so nervous the cord was wiggling. And it, he said, it looks like you're wrestling a sperm the whole time. This was a big push of support. So it, it just kind of came to our laps that this guy was going to start doing defensive driving at the improv. And it was like 300 bucks a day. And Tom, you know, Tom's the owner and everything. Tom was like, oh, yeah, this will be a great thing to do. And he told me, he says, if you guys do this, it was me, another guy named Robert Hawkins, and a couple other people you don't know, uh, Paul Douglas, who's a great comic, and a couple other people. He said, if you guys do this, we'll give you work at the club. And we're like, oh, that's great. So that was the motivation. The first class I taught here at the at Addison, Addison Improv, and two girls showed up. It was a nightmare. So, um <laughs> But then all of a sudden, I got a call the night before, and the guy who was putting it together said, hey, we got a full class tomorrow. Don't be late or whatever. It used to be eight hours. It was actually nine hours. You take it for nine hours because it was an eight-hour class, but we had to give them an hour for lunch. So nobody wanted to be there. They were angry and da-da-da-da. And Ducky, I was so nervous. Because I taught the class like four times. I didn't know it very well. And now it's sold out people. So again, this is a thing I always do. Sometimes when it gets really bad, I just decide, well, let me just go for broke. So this is what I decided to do. So at 8 o'clock that morning, full class, you know, the door staff had checked them in and everything. And everyone from the back of the bar, back of the room here, they hear this, <laughs> and they turn around. I had a bathrobe in my boxers with yes. a T-shirt, wearing, flip, you know, uh, slippers, <laughs> with sunglasses on, shaving. <laughs> And I just walked up and, but my hand was shaking. I was like, what are they like, what is this stupid thing? But I'm sure you've done this where you're like, oh, I don't know about this, but you pull the cord and it gets a big laugh. It's the yes. best sound in the world. Yes. And everyone started laughing. And then I don't remember exactly, but I got up and said something about why'd you guys dress? It's Saturday morning at eight. <laughs> and I just started doing kind of crowd work, but still it took a long, long time, like three or four months. That was great, but they're still ticked off about being here. There's still some obstinate jerk who's just defiant. it, raises his hands. That's not true. And if that's so, why don't the police do it? You know, you see, it's like it was an eight-hour heckle training Yeah. I had to win those people over. So when we started doing this, they were really, the TEA, the Texas Education Agency, they're the ones who kind of organized it. They told us when we were getting trained to be instructors, they're like, we're going to send people to your class. They're going to be undercover. And if we see you doing things wrong, we're going to shut you down. Oh, wow. Because they told us, they're like, we don't want comics teaching this. We think it's a mixed message that it's like, hey, our message is be a safe driver. And your message is driving zany. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, you know, we had all these problems. And so I didn't want to drop the ball. And so I got kind of (laughs) Nazi-ish. That's even a word. (laughs) where we had a break, like a 15-minute break, and I would set a timer up on my, I had a little podium here, and I'd set up the timer, and I'd tell everybody, I'd say, get back within 13 minutes. Be seated within two minutes of class time. I said, because when that goes off, I'm locking the door, and if you guys come back late, I'm not letting you in. I'm. T- Are we all cool? Does everyone understand? Yeah, it's fine. We get it. And every class, there'd be someone coming back late. Or, you know, the layout of the improv, you know, the back door, if sometimes that's open because the staff is fixing stuff, people would sneak in and then try and sneak into class. But I would always take roll immediately. And I would say, okay, you know, and I used to have people in numbered seats so I could take roll quickly, and I used to memorize everyone's names, all this stupid stuff. So I was kind of a Nazi in that. People would come back late. My thought process is, well, this is either someone from the state seeing what I'm going to do. Yeah. Or someone from the state is in the class seeing what I'm going to do. So I used to lock people out. And there's, you never knew them, but there's a manager named Trey. And Trey took all the grief for that because I would say, you know, they'd be banging at the door and cl- it would be uncomfortable and I'd make jokes about it. And then we'd just move on. Eventually they'd give up. But sometimes they'd go back and the manager was in the office and he'd take the grief. And he would just come out and goes, can you let him in? I was like, no, Trey, I can't. I yeah. told you about this. We don't know if anyone from the state is here and we don't know if they're from the state. So Trey hated me so much because I did that <laughs> so many times. The other instructors would let it slide. But you know Tom, and I didn't want to have to get the tall from Tom.
2: Yeah. Because
1: I love Tom. He's like my brother. You know, we started roughly at the same time at the improv where he was a door guy. But he's the boss. He's the owner. He's the manager, you know, and it can get ugly quickly. So no disrespect. He's the best thing ever. (laughs) But anyone in that position is going to be that way, right? So, right. um, So after a while, I just relaxed on stage. And then suddenly my sets went from, you know, lower to higher. Just everything changed. So it was a speed course for me because a lot of comics said, they're like, you know, you're not going to get over that for years. It's going to take you a long time. But I got over it really quickly within a few months, three months or so. Boosted my confidence, changed everything. But the problem is, you know, like when I teach a workshop, there's always people who like they're very nervous in class. And I think, oh, it's going to be even worse when there's 300 people here. But I never know how anyone's going to do with the show. I really don't. I told you this, I think. I've had some people who were amazing in class and just okay in the showcase and vice versa. But Paul Varghese, you know, Paul in the class used to be eight weeks long. Now it's only six weeks, but it was eight weeks long. And around the fifth week, I was going to throw Paul out. <laughs> what a mistake that would have been, right? Because he just came in and he would just read and he wouldn't look up and perform. He wouldn't do anything. And a friend of mine, Chuck Kaysen, another comic who's great, he passed away a few years ago. But Chuck would kind of hang out sometimes. And he was my uh, conciliore or whatever. So I would talk to him. I said, I think I'm going to get Paul his money back and just let him go. Because I don't want him embarrassing himself at the showcase. I think it's going to be really bad. But this was like, you know, I've been teaching for like a year or so. So I didn't realize But I know now. Chuck talked me out of it. He's like, man, just give him a shot, you know, if it's just the worst. So the way I decide the show order, if there's 10 comics, I'll take out the ace through 10 of hearts. I always have a deck of cards because I'm a magic geek. And then I'll write everyone's name down just randomly. And then I'll shuffle that packet face down. So if, Ducky, you're number three on the list, but I turn over the ace, then you go first. Here's some insight. A lot of clubs, when they do open mics or whatever, they do put you in positions thinking on how well you're going to do. You know, I was always heard, you know, the fourth position is the sweet spot. That's the best spot because the audience has been warmed up. It's not too late, so they're not tired. You know, about the middle of the show is the best spot. But I found that to be BS because some comics who were horrible would get the fourth spot and still die. And then some comics who you didn't think were that great would get a bad spot, would do great. So I don't th- I don't believe in that. Right. So I just put randomly. So then Paul Varghese, of course, goes last. And I have this crisis of conscience. I'm like, well, <laughs> I tell him I'll do that, but I don't want him to be the last one. But I was like, no, I got to do it. I just got to do it. So, you know, if what I say is what I'm going to do. So this was a Monday night. The club was packed. So this is when the improv headliners would come in Tuesday through Sunday. You know, now it's what, Thursday or Friday through uh, Sunday? Thursday through Sunday, yeah. Yeah. Mitch Hedberg was here that week. He showed up that night because his family lives in Plano. So he'd gone to see his family, and he just decided to drop by the club. And he comes in and sees this packed house. He likes what's going on? And the managers told him. And, you know, the management here will do anything for the headliner, yeah. you know, treat them like royalty because they are. And so the manager came up and said, Mitch wants to do a set. I was like, uh, the reason I was hesitating, is was like, but he's got to follow Paul Varghese, <laughs> 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 who I thought might have done poorly. So the show was great, you know, and the thing about the showcase is you bring 20 people, someone else brings 30 people, somebody else brings 10. So you have a packet of the audience that's already on your side. They're going to laugh. They're going to applaud. And everyone says, well, your showcases are kind of a cheat for that reason. And I agree with that up to a point. But the thing is, you still have 170 people who are not here to see you. you got to play to them. If you do well, then that shows that, yeah, you had fan base. But that's what headliners have. They have a fan base. But there's still people who don't know who they are. I digress. So (laughs) Paul's getting ready to go up. Now, in my lifetime, when I was a kid, my mom was a big Elvis fanatic. Elvis came to Denver when I was about eight or nine. And, you know, she got backstage, and she went to a party with him, and apparently he asked her to sleep with him, and she said no. Oh, wow. I can do the whole Elvis thing later on. (laughs) But she found out when he was leaving on his plane to Lisa Marie. So we went out to Stapleton Airport, to this little side airport, to see him leaving. You know, and no one knew it was him, but there was still about 20. It was Elvis in 72 or 77, or 70, I think. And I remember, Ducky, this guy got out of the limo and walked up, and he had like this powder blue... Nehru jacket on, and he had all the rings and the glasses. It was like looking at a god. Yeah. I mean, it was like, he's not a human. There was a glow about him, and I'm not a starstruck, but I was just like, oh my god, what is that? And then I saw Michael Jackson on the Victory Tour, and, you know, he, I was way back, and he was real small. But mm-hmm. still, when he walked on, there was just that thing. Some people just have that thing. So little timid Paul goes walking up on stage, and it was a lion was born. He wow. just exploded. And, you know, Paul Varghese is one of the best comics ever. And he just became Paul Varghese. And he crushed it to the point where I was standing next to Mitch Hedwig by the soundboard. And he was going to get up and do like 20 minutes. and He was going to try out new jokes is what he basically wanted to do. And he was going, man, I don't know if I can follow that. Oh, wow. First time on stage. And then he got up on stage and he he said, you know, here's a little trick comics do. If you follow a fantastic comic, you can either ignore that that happened and hope the audience forgets it too. (laughs) Or you acknowledge it. And he got up and goes, give it up that guy, Paul Varghese, man. He's great. That's something else, man. I don't know if I can find-. He made a joke about it. Yeah. Now, he killed because, you know, everyone was like, who's this? He's here? I'm oh like, because he's very hot at the time. But that was Paul's first time on stage. So like three weeks later, I get a call from Paul. And he says, hey, I'm doing a show at the Improv called Indians at the Improv. Do you want to do it? And I said, Well, Paul, I think I'm one sixteenth Cherokee. (laughs) And he goes, Well, it's just me and Raj Sharma. But that was the club's idea, I think. I think this club wanted to call it Indians at the Improv, but we gotta fill the show and I'm asking you and asking Chuck, would you do it? And I was like, sure. You know, and in my heart, Ducky, you know this, like, this is what drives me crazy about people take my class, is you know, before the last class, they bring me their card and they have a website. I'm like, dude, you don't have an app. You have no experience, you're fresh to this. Even if you have six minutes that kills, you gotta have a minimum what would you say, 30?
0: Oh, yeah. you got to have a minimum yeah. of
1: 30 before you start promoting shows and people come out and all that. Unless they know it's an open mic and just, hey, I'm working on stuff and this won't be great, but I need the support. That's another thing. So in my heart, when Paul called me, I was kind of like, why is this kid doing a show already? I mean, he's got six minutes. You know, it's obvious you're calling people to fill in the time. You don't have it. So, Ducky, when I got here, I don't know if you've ever seen this. This only happened for one other comic, which was, who's the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway? I can't think of his name. Anyway, I saw this happen for him. But when I got here for that show Tuesday night for Paul, there was a crowd wrapped around the building twice. What? And I didn't realize, but Paul is very well connected with the Indian community. So he put the word out. So, like, 30 people couldn't get in. They oversold. They wouldn't let them in.
0: That's insane.
1: And the next thing I knew, like, you have to ask Paul. I think it was once a month, but there was Indians at the improv show every Tuesday night. Like, like maybe it's twice a month. I don't know. But for two or three years. And that's why Paul accelerated so quickly. Mm. Because he's a great writer. He's a great performer. He was born to do this. But also, he had a steady audience coming out to see him that you know what this is like. Because when you start doing this, I mean, what is there now? Probably 35 different open mics in Dallas. Oh, yeah, it's nice. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> it's nice. If you can drive, you could probably go up two or three times a night in yeah. Dallas. On a Monday, on a Sunday, you could get yep. stage time. But at the time, there was the back door, and that was it. I'm sure I'd be corrected on this. But to me, there was like, you know, the improv wasn't doing open mics. Hyenas wasn't even around, I don't think, then. They were not doing. So Paul had a steady gig, you know, with a big audience. But the problem with most open mics now is, You know, how do you get your friends and family to come out and see you more than twice? You can do a show at the Improv and they'll come see you because they're excited. And they'll come and see one more show. But then the next time you invite them, they'll go, well, do you have anything new? Do you have a fresh 10 minutes? Or, you know, we've seen you and that's great, but it's the same thing, right? It's really hard to get people to come back. But no one knew about the world the way it is now. There was no Facebook or marketing or anything like that. You would just call some friends and hope for the best, get two out of 20 calls, right? So Paul had a steady audience because that audience came to see him, but the improv also promoted it. So it wasn't just people he knew. It was real audience. Not real audience. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it was a mix of not just supportive, but people want to see him. That's the big secret. This is where the story is going. <laughs> is My workshop's incredible. If you do yes. exactly what I say, you'll be awesome. But the biggest secret for stand-up is you got to get as much stage time as possible and do a different set, if necessary, every time till you find that good set. Because how many people do you know, Ducky, that you've seen them And this isn't a criticism, it's just a fact. We're not making fun of you. But they go up with a set that was bombing six months ago, and they're still doing that bombing set. What is that?
0: I I don't know. People don't write. They're lazy. That's what it comes down to. Or they don't want to perform. And that's one of my favorite things about your class, is the first thing you say is stand-up is a performance. Mm -hmm. You need to get up there and actually put on a performance. And it's hard. It really is. It's hard to get used to that. It's hard to find your identity on stage and all those things. But it eventually comes to you. And Brilliant. yeah, and, But sitting down to actually just do it, that's where a lot of comics – because comics are procrastinators. Right. And they, they will wait to the last second to do anything. And then, like you said, with the open mics, yeah, you're right. You can go to two or three a night now. It's it's absolutely it's insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane.
1: And they all have audiences. Like, it's – you know, there's a comedy – what do you call it? A gold, the golden age of comedy right now because a lot of people want to go out and see comedy. Even if it's crappy – They enjoy the, oh, well, you know, the next one will be good, you know. And so Dallas is very, very blessed in so many ways because you go out to L.A. or New York or Chicago, and I have students who've gone to those places, and sometimes they got to wait three or four weeks to get a five-minute set because the line is so long, and then they get bumped because Bill Burr shows up (laughs) um, or whatever, you know. So it's very, you know, what would you say? There's probably, and I'm just basing this on looking at DFW Comedians on uh, Facebook, where there's, I think there's 2,000 members now? Yes. But great. how many of those are proactively doing stand-up?
0: You know what's weird is people congregate to different clubs. So, yeah. like, hyenas will have their comedians, improv will have their comedian, the smaller bars and stuff like that. And no one really goes out and populates those other areas. Now, I don't know why. Like, I'll see people down at TKs or something like that, but they never come over here. Yeah. And it, it doesn't make any sense to me because I'm like, wouldn't you want to get as much experience as possible by going... To the, you know, the STFU open mics that are ran by Mana's uh, Clause Out. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. So that makes zero sense to me. Like, you got to get out there and you got to practice as much as possible. And like you said, work new material. Work new
1: material, yeah. And I think it's also people get comfortable at a club. So TKs or Dallas Plano House of Comedy or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Are we allowed to say that or the letter's going to (laughs) fall off the wall? (laughs) But you get comfortable and you know that room. And and because there's a group that's like your support group, but you got to go do to different clubs. You know, in one club, a lot of comics fear is the Arlington Improv because it's an urban room. Yeah, you know, it's it's a black audience, and a lot of I love of white it. I love it.
0: I, it's one of my favorite rooms. But it's home to me. I worked there for seven years, yeah. so I feel comfortable. But I love black audiences because if you are not funny, they are not going to laugh. They're that not, is all yeah. there is to it. And if they don't like you, they're not going to laugh. What's nice about it is every room has a different, you know, flavor to it and a different challenge to it. And it's really fun.
1: Yeah. You gotta do all of them. But all anyone wants to do is their home club and then corporate events. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because well, <laughs> they pay well. Yeah. I mean that's something that you taught yeah, the class too, you talked about those corporate events. Like when you get to that point where you're good enough to do those and the money is great, um, mm-hmm. but you have to work clean and I wanted to talk about that. That's something that you do is you work clean and you teach the work to clean. Right. Where does that come from for you? Like, was that something that you've always done or you know, did you start out a little bit nasty? or?
1: No, I, I did write one dirty joke. I can't even remember it right now. When I first got started, it's sexual and it's racist and it's horrible. <laughs> oh, no, it's uh, my friend is uh, he's got a date with a woman who's a, a Native American, and I think the date's going to go really well because her Indian name is Spread Eagle. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. Oh, oh, you can't do that joke anymore. <laughs> I didn't...
1: I don't know where it came from. I just think I saw Spread Eagle, and I thought, oh, that's that's a funny Indian name. That's where that... It didn't come from any place of like, let me make fun of anybody it's just, but yeah that was one of my first jokes Yeah. but back to Seinfeld you know I was bartending at, at the Dallas Improv when he came in one time but you know he did his show and then he tells the host to get them applaud enough to bring him back like he does an encore but it's kind of staged and it's partially I think he does it just so he can do this line because they were applauding like yeah more and more and he gets back up he goes why are you applauding why would you miss me I was just right there <laughs> very Seinfeld but anyway so he would take questions from the audience and somebody said tell us a dirty joke And he said, you know, you can hear a dirty joke tomorrow at work. Tonight you came to see a professional show. And that was, I heard angels sing. I was like, yeah, that's the deal. And then, you know, everyone works blue at the beginning. And I'm not knocking that. I understand it. But it's also like, you know, part of the reason I push it in my workshop is you've got to do things. I call it step away from the crowd. You know, there's a crowd of comics. What do you do to step away from that group and be noticeable? And one of the simplest things is just don't work blue. That's all you got to do is just cut out all the sex stuff all the body function stuff all the cursing all the you know anything and then another layer of that is being racist you know like i've got a girl in class right now and she's just this adorable white woman but she was telling these mexican jokes last night
2: (laughs) oh jeez
1: and i told her i said look (laughs) you know i just preface it now because people really fight back i'm like you can do whatever you want but i'm going to tell you you're going to have shows where people are going to get really ticked off about that she goes but I used to live in West Texas. I dated all these Mexican guys. I'm like, then you need to do jokes about that first. So at least we understand where that's coming from. Because right now it comes across as racist. Yeah. Even though that's not in your heart, you know how weird the world is now. And eventually the pendulum will swing back. Yeah. So that's where it came from with Seinfeld. And then also I used, I still do love Jay Leno and he worked really clean. And my friend Oliver, who's with four day weekend now, we started stand up together and we went and saw, and Robert Hawkins was with us too. And uh, by the way, Robert Hawkins is a red-haired guy. Oliver, my friend, is black, and I'm very white. We used to call ourselves the Neapolitan Group. <laughs> Hawkins' named us that. But we went and saw Jay Leno, and then we had a friend who got us backstage, and we got to go hang with Leno for like an hour. It was amazing. Yeah. Was I've amazing. heard he's
0: a nice guy. Like Nicest
1: guy in the world. And yeah. I know the thing with Conan and all, but I think that there's layers to that story. Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't try and fight to keep the Tonight Show? Absolutely. But he told us, he said, you know, he says, working blue just limits you. And Sean Trainer, who used to be a manager here, he said it best. The only thing Sean ever said that I like. No, (laughs) I love Sean. I miss him. But he said, you know, if you work dirty, you can work this many places. And he says, if you work clean, you can work everywhere. And then I added this. I'm like, also, you can always make clean dirty if you need to. You can drop an F bomb or do whatever. So that was always my thing. And, you know, it's the comics I admired were always super clean, you know, when I was coming up back in the 80s and 90s. So, that just set the level for me, and I get so much more work. You know, Brian Regan, he used to come to town, I guess, four or five times a year, and he actually said, I only want to work with Dean, because no other comic was clean at the time. Nobody else was clean. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's an example. And then, so this rolls into corporate, just a little word of warning. A lot of you are not going to like to hear this, but you shouldn't be doing corporate unless you have an hour clean. And I mean so squeaky clean, your grandmother at church <laughs> can listen to it, Right. And the reason is, here's the thing about corporate. Anybody can join Gig Salad. And then there's, used to be Gig Masters. I think it's called the Bash. And anyone can join these. And it's like 35 bucks a month or whatever. And you can put together a little press packet. And, you know, so somebody at a corporation today is going to, they're going to have a meeting and they're going to say, oh, we got to make this more entertaining or we got to do something different or whatever. And then they'll go, hey, Angela, uh, find us a comic. So somebody who has no idea of how to do this is going to go, what do you do? You go on the internet, local comics for hire. And the first thing that's going to come up is the bash and gig salad. So by paying your 30, 35, not 40 bucks, whatever, a month, you're already going to be noticed. And you're going to go to the gig salad and you're going to say, clean corporate comics. And they're going to give you 20 names. And then you're going to pick, all right, I like this guy, I like this girl, I like this one. And then gig salad's going to contact you and say, hey, so-and-so is interested in hiring you for a gig. What do you want to do? And so what you have to do then, and you put it on the page, but you put what your price range is. But you know, you put, okay, here's what I'm going to charge. Now, what everyone has figured out is, well, I'm going to lowball it. I'm going to go low, and that's how I'm going to get hired. And unfortunately, that works. But you have maybe 20 minutes they want you to do an hour. You think you're going to get away with crowd work, which is not going to work for corporate right. for a lot of it can, but it's not going to work, and you're going to go blue. So here's the problem. Here's the problem I want to get to. This is why I t- wag my finger like an old. <laughs> There's many times I've done things on bid for and I didn't get it. And so then I'll send them an email like the day after the event and say, hey, thanks so much. Or I'll call them. I actually call because I get their number. I actually I think calling is better than internet. So I'll call the company to talk to Pam, you know, and XY, XYZ Industries. Can I help you? And again, this is the night after the show. Yeah, I was calling. Can I speak to Pam? Pam Wilson? Oh, I'm sorry. She's no longer with the company. That's happened three different times. Now, I don't know this, but my instinct is they hired a comic. The comic cursed and went blue and didn't do the time. And Pam got fired for it. Because what can they do to the comic? Hold back the check, Yeah. if that. But, you know, the the corporate events, it's not just the bosses. It's they bring in clients. And family is there. And HR is there. And you can't do anything that is inappropriate, you know. So these comics are getting people fired, I think. I mean, I haven't confirmed that. I didn't say, well, did they get fired because the comic sucked? I mean, what am I going to say? But I would bet that's the reason because these comics will gladly put together, you know, a wizard at, at putting together a great website and they really upsell themselves and I'm doing it cheap and all this stuff. But the other thing I'll say is, you know, if you decide to do corporate events for a cheap amount and you're breaking all these other rules, it's really going to be hard for you to break into the $5,000 realm. It's going to be hard for you to break into the 10, 15, 20,000, you know, Seinfeld's corporate rate back in the day was a million dollars. Oh my god. With no meat and greek. Wow. Because you think, well, let's book him and then we can hang out with him and it's like, no, it's a million bucks no meat and greek. And he was booking them all the time. You know, but for big companies, there's a story about Leno, he did a thing for Microsoft and I think it was a million bucks. And they don't understand the corporate events. You know, people think comedy can be plugged in anywhere. You know, it's like, I've, I've done it before on the back of a pickup truck in Itasca, Texas on 4th of July where it was so hot and a train would pass by every 10 minutes. And the whole audience was sitting across the street under the awning because it was so hot. There were all these old blue hairs and they had lipstick on and all of it was so funny. Because he's like, look at them, they're celebrating 4th of July. I go, how? Huh? He goes, because they're red, white, and blue too.
2: Because
1: <laughs> their lipstick's melting on their white chins. You know, so I warn everybody and I tell everybody I'm like, look, you're not ready for corporate for at least 10 years. For no other reason, you're going to get somebody fired. Yeah. You know, you you know this is how comics are. They think they can do anything.
0: You have to have that mentality to go into it. Mm-hmm. But that's one of my favorite things about your workshop is you teach etiquette. And that's so important. I was going to ask, you have that amazing story about you had a corporate gig and the husband didn't like you and you had to buy him back. You mind telling me oh no, smart? that was
1: the wife. So that was, uh, uh, was the wife didn't like it. Yeah, you. that's this was the last corporate event I did before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. The last one I did. And um the guy who contacted me, I can't think of his name right now, he's a great guy. And he said, you know, we did a corporate event last year. We brought in entertainment, we brought in an improv group. It didn't really hit very well. So we're going in a different direction. So when I do a corporate event, you know, I usually I send them a questionnaire. I usually try to have a meeting with them. Like I go in. Understanding as much as I possibly can because I'm going to use that again. Most comics don't and don't steal that. Um, <laughs> but so everything was going great, and then it was at a hotel in Frisco, and I he wanted me to come in early and kind of do do a walkthrough and look at the lighting and everything. And so I did that, and they had already paid me, but he gave me like an extra couple hundred bucks. He goes, hey man, just thanks for your time. I know tonight's show is going to be great. Going to be awesome, blah blah blah. And so, you know, usually what I do is I have like a couple minutes of material about them. You know, they only want to hear about themselves. And so, I had these jokes and I told the guy the jokes. He goes, Oh, those are great, we love those. So, I go up there, Mr. I never met him, but you know, he's 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 an older gentleman and you know, he's his way of the world and everything. And his wife was there. And I get up and I do those jokes and they're just dying like nothing. And I've never had it that bad at a corporate event. And there's like three or four hundred people there with their spouses and they're all dressed up and it's you know, a big deal. And I'm like, Oh my god. So then, you know, my go-to is do a little bit of crowd work, find out about them, get them on your side, and it won't work. And that wasn't working. And then Mr. Huffines, he said something. He, he like, kind of heckled me. I was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> I, I've only had this a couple times where that cold sweat on your back, uh-huh. and each drip goes down, you know, laughing at you. And I was like, this is a nightmare. And they pay me a lot of money. And plus, a guy gave me a tip. And they thought, I was like, OK, well, the last thing I can do. And I gently started talking to her, to his wife. And I got her laughing which got him laughing, which won the crowd over. And then the show ended up, okay, not my best, but I got out of there. But that's the secret is, you know, you got to know who to win over in a corporate event. And it's usually the CEO because if the CEO is not liking you, then they're not going to laugh. But if you win over the CEO, but the CEO hated me. But so I went for the wife, which is risky, Ducky, because she could have been like, you know, on his side or whatever. But I I took the risk that people married for a long time usually don't agree on anything. (laughs)
2: It's true. It's very true.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of the – you want to hear another story? Absolutely. It's not even really about me, but it's just a lesson to be learned. And by the way, I want to give a plug to Four Day Weekend, who are in Fort Worth and Dallas. And I know all those guys. Hands down, the best at what they do. They probably do, I'm guessing, a couple corporate shows every week. To this day, during the pandemic, I'm sure they were performing a lot. And they're just at another level. They're the best improv, and they're best at what they do, customizing the show for each corporate – they're fantastic. They're the best, the best. I can't say enough. I'm jealous of how great they are. And, you know, when they do those shows, people are always in the audience and they book them after those shows. I mean, it's just, they're a machine. They're awesome. And they've done thousands of shows. So once in a while, I get to work with them. Dave Ahern is usually their host, but he was doing something else. And I'm a. they call me in sometimes, which I'm very grateful for. It's great. And again, I get to see him and I love them, And I know Oliver and Frank and the other Dave and everybody. So this was at the, uh, uh, I forgot. What's the place by, uh, by DFW? anyway so it was out there you know and it's top of the line so at these corporate events you know these companies rent the rooms for a limited amount of time so at this event you know they had a big stage there was probably a couple thousand people there if not more and four day weekend had been working with this company all week long like they'd done improv workshops and they'd done all this training with them and all they so I'm sure they're getting paid a pretty penny right and this is always a mistake. So they did the award ceremony and then it was gonna be the improv show. We were gonna do an hour-long improv show at the end. So the award ceremony goes way over, way, way over. It was supposed to be done around 8 30 or 9. It was like 10 15 before it finished. Oh wow. In the meantime, the staff at the hotel is telling us they're like, You guys only have the room till eleven because we got a we've got a big thing coming in tomorrow, and it's gonna take us twelve hours to strike the room. You guys gotta get out of here. You know, we're we're pulling the lights. Oh. So the award ceremony ends, and the CEO, I believe, says something about, this has been a great year, congratulations to everybody, we're going to have a fantastic year, thank you all for coming out, thank you, good night, and 80% of the room stands up and starts to leave. As they're leaving, then the music starts, and it's supposed to be, and now, ladies and gentlemen, you've been working with, please welcome 4-Day Weekend. Now, they had wireless mics, and everyone gets up at the time and starts getting on their phone. The sound system goes into the toilet. I don't know if it was interference. I don't know what it was, but 80% of the room had left. They were all leaving, or they were going to the back of the room to drink. So some people were staying to watch the show. So it's just it's a nightmare. No one's fault, really, but it's just everything goes wrong. So then my job was to get suggestions from people. But nobody's there. So I jump off the stage, and I start <laughs> going up to people because you can't hear them over the sound of people in the back talking loud loudly. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, we need a location, or hey, we need this. And so I go to the CEO. I said, hey, we need a suggestion. He snatches the mic out. He goes, my suggestion is everyone get back in their seats and watch the show.
2: Oh. Like
1: sternly <laughs> admonishes them. And about 100 people heard that and came back. But it was just going poorly. Yeah. Nothing was working. Not the fault of four-day not the fault of the company but it's just it was a miscommunication and in the meantime the people from the hotel are saying we're going to pull the plug on you in just a few minutes you got it. so but Forday decided like let's just end the show early it's not going great anyway we da, 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 da. so they didn't do an hour and they didn't get paid for anything and the ceo's excuse was i paid you for an hour oh, and they're like wow. so for the whole week they didn't get paid they paid me that night 4Day always pays me in cash that mm-hmm. night i wanted to give them the money back you know He's like, but you didn't do an hour show. But you want to say, like, yeah, because you guys ran too long. You know, you can't say it without straightening them out, sounding right. like a stern person. You can't do that with a client. And I talked to Frank, one of the guys, a couple years ago. I said, you guys ever get paid? He goes, we never got paid. I'm just letting everybody know, again, corporate, you know, if you're not ready to do the job, you run the risk of not getting paid or you run the risk of getting fired. Or, you know, sometimes corporate events are not set up well. I did one for Microsoft, which was outdoors in the middle of the day. They had uh, sack races. (laughs) It was was a nightmare. A nightmare. You know, it's outside and you can hear in the mic as the wind blew. And and,
0: daytime is not always the best time for comedy, too.
1: Or outside. And you know, because I talk about this, one of the great things about the improv is they have a low ceiling. It's the reason all comedy clubs have a low ceiling, because the laughter bounces back.
0: That's why I love this room, because of the ceiling. You know, I want to ask if you would share how you got the Allen gig. So it kind of plays into your radio. You did radio for a very long time. Yeah. So, first of all, how did you get the radio gig? How did that come along?
1: So, you know, I owe this to, again, Trey Ballou, the manager. He's moved on to other things. So I was teaching the workshop up here, and I was getting like three or four people, whatever. And, you know, the club has a good relationship with a lot of morning radio shows because they bring the comics in. So Trey said to me, he goes, why don't we get you on the Jagger show? And you can promote the class. I was like, oh, that's a good one. Thank you. Yes, that'd be great. So I go on there, and there was just, you know, certain people you just click with. And I just clicked with all of them, and we just had the best time. And part of it was Jagger thought I was from out of town because he had seen me. And my intro used to be, uh, has has been seen in Vegas, please welcome, because I used to do Vegas a lot. So he thought I lived in Vegas, and he thought I was like this big deal coming into their little show. Not a little show, but you know what I mean. And so afterwards, dude, this is a sign if you ever do radio, if they keep you for a long time. By the way, I'll tell the Joe Rogan story in a few minutes. Oh, right on. But they ended up keeping me on the entire time. And when I was on there, I had the idea. I was like, well, listen, I got a class starting in two weeks. Why don't you guys take it? Why don't you take the class? And they're like, oh, we'd love to do that. So at the time, it was Jagger, Julie, and Slim Jim. And then their producer was Paula. so Paula didn't show up. But all three of them showed up to that class, along with 48 people. I had Like 40 Wow. Some people show up for that first class. So that's when I broke it into two classes, and I had to tell a lot of people next time. So it just, the workshop suddenly caught on fire because of Jagger. So anyway, because they had seen me and because they were in the workshop, and then Jagger ended up, hes very busy, couldn't take it. This is what I said. Why don't you guys take the class, and I'll come back every couple weeks and talk about your progress. Get on the air. Genius. Genius. Yeah. At the time, to- I just thought, I didn't pre-plan, I just, some little angel on my shoulder said yeah. that. And so I was going on, and after a while... And then we did the showcase, and they did great. And then that morphed into... I don't know exactly how, but it morphed into them saying, Hey, you know, so Jagger's gone every Friday because there's a show called Change of Heart that he used to host. He used to fly out to L.A., I think. So he couldn't be there on Fridays. They're like, Hey, why don't you come in on Fridays and just be on air? You know, you can talk about whatever. But so I was on there for a while. And then Jagger came to me and said, Listen, we we want you to be part of the show. We love when you're on the show. And he said, But the problem is we have no budget for you. He said, However... He says, I get a bonus. I'm going to give you my bonus if you'll stay on the air with us for the next few months. And he goes, next year we'll get you on the show. And 40000 Wow. That was his bonus. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. And that's what he paid you for a couple months' worth of work? For like yeah.
1: four months' work.
0: That's so awesome.
1: Oh six God. months' work, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And so that morphed into um, I was suddenly on. Now, I had no plans to do that. And, you know, one of the great lessons I learned later on, I'm telling everybody this on radio, when we moved to a different station. But one of the great lessons of radio is you don't have to be heard the whole time. You know, a lot of people get on and they want to fill the airtime. They want to talk all the time. They want to try jokes and everything. And I just kind of knew from improv, you know, it's always I have a line. Now you get your line. Exactly. You know, share the scene. And so I knew that. But then when a program director told me that, I was like, oh, exactly. He goes, that's the, he goes, that's the thing I want to tell you. He says, you don't need to be heard all the time. He says, you're really good at that, but sometimes you overdo it. He says, just shut up for a while. You, you got the gig. You're fine. So that's a lesson for everybody on radio is they want to fill and blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do that and talk the entire time like I am on this podcast. (laughs) So I was married at the time, and my mother-in-law had heard that Ellen DeGeneres was doing this contest to get on her show. And it was a tie-in with uh, Wendy's hamburger Place. So what you had to do was send them like a a six-minute set. And out of that, they were going to pick a group of 12 of us to go to Vegas to do a show. And out of that, they would pick the winner. I was talking about it on the air, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do it or whatever. And Jagger's like, well, we're going to promote that. So I cheated because I had, you know, DFW as a listenership of millions, Mm -hmm. literally millions of people. So I had all these people. So I made it for the first round. It was apparently Ellen picked who was going to go through the first round. So the station had nothing to do with that. But then there was the 12 of us. The point was, I had I had a huge listenership who was supporting me. And here's how I won. Here's the way I won this. This is just... <laughs> so we were in Vegas. We were staying at Caesars, but I think the showcase was at the uh, Stardust or whatever. And if you've ever been to Vegas, you know, they have these bridges over the highway, over the road. You know, when you go to Vegas, you ever been to Vegas? Mm-hmm. You'll hear sirens constantly because everyone's getting run over all the time. There's okay. always sirens. People are always having heart attacks. You know, what happens in Vegas... Ends up at a graveyard. (laughs) just constant. So I remember this. So all 12 of us, along with two people from the staff, are walking across the bridge. And as we're walking across the bridge, and it's dusk, it's not that bright, and these three guys come walking up, and they go, Dean Lewis! Oh, my God! (laughs) And they run up, like, "We, we want you to win this. We're so excited. And as soon as they did that, I saw all the other comics go, (laughs) <laughs> it like crushed them and we talked just for a second I signed autographs I'm like we love you on the Jagger show I just happened to run into those they're the reason I won and as soon as we walked away the, the one of the producers came up and he goes he says you know you just won this right and I was like I, I was dumb I was like why he goes did you see how everybody was I said yeah it seemed like they he goes yeah you've destroyed them he says you already won this I was like yeah. well whatever so we did our sets and I didn't think mine was that good but then like two or three days later I get contacted they're like hey we're from the Ellen DeGeneres show and you won the contest." and Here's the ticket. You and your wife can come out to L.A. You're going to get to spend three nights here. The taping is going to take a little bit of time and uh, it's going to air the following day. So I went and did it, you know, and it was amazing. It was very funny because what you think is going to be is never what. So my wife and I are there and the Ellen show, I think they tape like three or four a day gone now. But so all these celebrities are coming in and we were in this little dressing room. It was nice. But across the hall was the makeup room. And so I went in and got my makeup, you know, and they're just we'll come and get you. And the show I was on, Carrie Fisher was on it, and Harry Connick Jr. were the guests. And I was like, maybe I'll get to meet them. I don't know, you know. But I was just like, I'm just going to float through this and not ask for anything, and just whatever they tell me, I'm going to do it. When it came time for me to do it, they're like, well, you're going to be doing it in the, uh, I don't remember what they called it, but there's a group of people who are in the main room, and then there's a side room. So I was going to be doing the show in the side room. I wasn't even going to be on the Ellen set or whatever. And I was confused because they said, well, you're going to do a set, then we're going to interview you. And then it was like, no, we're just going to interview you. And then it turned out, it was like, no, you're just doing a set. So I go to this back room. It looks a lot like this. They built a little mini stage or whatever. So I go up in front of 300 people. And Ellen was there, and we talked for a minute. And then I did a joke. I just got to do one joke. Yeah, That's all they wanted was one joke. Yeah,
0: you can watch the video on YouTube. And it's insane. But the joke you chose was so smart because you have a decent-sized setup. Mm-hmm. And then you have punch, 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 punch. Is that a punch, tag, tag, tag? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, tag, tag, tag. Yeah, 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 it's insane. And I watched it earlier. I was like, that's, that's so smart because, like, one of the things you teach is laughs per minute, you mm-hmm. know? And you want to do what? Is it five to seven? Or?
1: Minimum of five. Yeah. Minimum, minimum of five. Yeah. And get your first laugh within the first eight seconds of being on stage. Right. But yeah, and then headliner, you know, headliners usually start at eight to ten laughs yeah. per minute. And then the story is, I saw Dennis Miller once and I counted when I first learned about that. He got twenty two laughs in a minute. That's insanity.
0: How? And but the, the tag, 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 like you said, that's how you just keep going off that one thing. And so uh, that was so funny to me because I, I think the it's all two minutes is the clip online, if that, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, what great exposure! And to say I've been on Ellen is that got me a it?
1: ton of work, man. Yeah, because if I get anyone interested in you know corporate, and I'll send them that clip and the one from last Comic Sanding, and that's all I got to do. You know, even though those shows are ancient now, it's still in the public mind.
0: I was going to ask about the Emmy. Yeah, How did Emmy. that come along? You know, like, what was the DFW-10? Is that what you want it for?
1: Yeah, so DFW-10, it was kind of a ripoff of of Soup in that me and the other guy, Lee Van Cleef, who was the producer, but the other writer, he's the one who hired me. So what we did was, and God, what was this? 2006, 2006, something like that. When the internet is not what it is today. Mm-hmm. But we would scour YouTube and we would scour the internet looking for just weird videos. I was just a writer on the show and then this host she was awesome she would tell the jokes you know so it's basically hey show a clip make fun of it show a clip make fun of it it's a simple format for a show so I get a call one day from Frank Ford from Four Day Weekend. He goes, Hey, we you know, we know this guy, Lee, and he wants to do this show, but we're just so busy and we thought of you. Do you want to have lunch with him? And I was like, sure. So I go to meet him and Lee Van Cleef, what a name. Nicest guy in the world, and he tells me what his vision is. And I was like, Okay, yeah, let's do it. I gave him some examples of what I do and everything. He goes, Yeah, I think you're the guy. So, you know, I would write furiously because a lot of times he wouldn't send me the clips until the night before. You know, I was up at four in the morning writing these jokes and everything you know it was on channel 11 you know the midway point between Dallas and Fort Worth the Mm -hmm. station there that's where we filmed it and it was on the news set but they built one little tiny part of it just for us like one day there was a tornado thing and they had to come in and stop us so they could do a weather report you know it was just like (laughs) this halfway put together kind of thing we felt like we were you know bothering him and then Lee tells me he goes uh so I'm gonna I'm gonna nominate us for Emmys I think this show's good enough and I was like what are you talking about (laughs) It's because he's won Emmys. You know, he was a news guy, but he he wanted to do other types of programming. He goes, I've won some Emmys. He goes, it'll be a regional Emmy, but he says it's an official Emmy. And he says, I'm going to nominate us for it. So I was like, okay, fine. Sure, do that, Lee. Go ahead, you wackaloon. So this was when I was back on the Jagger show. And at this point, the Jagger show has gone through so many transformations. But at the time, it was me and Jagger and then Mondo Mike and Jasmine Sadry. They were on the show, too. So Jasmine was in a play, and none of us had ever done anything like that. So we all went out to go see her play on a Saturday night. And I was so excited, and I was, you know, we all had dinner. You know, we used to hang out. A lot of radio shows don't hang out. We're actually, we still text each other all the time. So I go to see the show, and I, you know, and I've got my tux rented for tomorrow night as a big ceremony, the big Emmy thing, you know. And I was going through divorce, didn't have a girlfriend, and I was just like, well, I'm just going to go table of one. It'll be, you know, I'm part of this Emmy ceremony. It's going to be great. I'll sit with Lee. Oh, I couldn't sit with Lee because he had moved. He had left like a month, but he got hired to somewhere. He had to leave, so he was gone. So I'm driving home Saturday night after the play. And I get a call from Lee, and I was like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And he goes, hey, man, where are you? I was like, well, I just saw a play. He goes, why are you not at the Emmys? And I thought he was busting my hump. I was like, tomorrow night. He goes, it was tonight. Oh, no. (laughs) And I pulled over because I was, you know, I get emotional. I was about to cry. Like, I was like, what? I missed it? Lee, you're messing with me. He goes, no, I'm not messing with you. It was tonight. You you didn't show up. Oh, wow. Oh, and I was just like, it's like, Lee, I'm so sorry. He goes, I don't care about that. He goes, you won. He goes, we won. I was like, what? He goes, we won the Emmy. You're kidding me. He goes, no. He goes, he says, can you write something down? Write this person, email them, and tell them your address. They'll ship the Emmy to you. So I totally missed it. But like a week later, there's this huge package on my porch. And I open it up, and it's an Emmy. An Emmy. Now, again, it's regional, you know, which meant it was like us in New Mexico. There's like six states. It wasn't a big-time television Emmy, but I've got it in my house. And can I tell you a little off-color thing? Sure. That thing's got me laid so many times. <laughs> I'd be on dates, you know, and my kids were at their mom's. And they go, well, let me see your Emmy. Because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't display it in my house. You yeah. know, it's hidden away. So I bring it out. And the next thing I know, there's piles of clothes on the <laughs> floor. And the Emmy, man, I'm telling you. And you told me before the radio didn't hurt either. Radio didn't hurt. And, you know, also what helped a lot, when I started at The Edge, my first son, Connor, had been born. And then my second son, Logan, had been born. And then I got fired. and It was a nightmare because I wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't even teaching defensive. I quit defensive driving. So I had no income other than the radio. And it was insurance. And all that was gone. But 105.3, which is a sports station now, because at the time, 105.3 had had Howard Stern. But he had quit to go to so satellite radio. And, and David Lee Roth had taken over. And that was a nightmare. And he's not a radio guy, he's an entertaining genius, but he's not a radio guy. So they had gone to Opie and Anthony, but that wasn't working because it was not local. People didn't like that. So the program director was looking for other shows and he just happened to listen to us. He goes, this is the show we should get because it's local, it's funny, it's all these things. So the day after we got fired, Or like a couple days later, we had lunch with them, and we got hired over at the uh, 105.3. But I'll tell you that whole story if you want to hear it. Yeah. Because we weren't allowed to get hired somewhere else for a while. But we did it anyway. But anyway, so when my wife Heather at the time, when she went into labor the first time, like I was on the air that morning. Like I was calling the station every morning going, not yet, not yet. So it was like kind of this big deal. And then when Connor was a year old, we did the uh, Edge Fest um, St. Patrick's Day Parade. And my wife was working, and I couldn't find a sitter, so I had to take Connor with me. But we dressed him up like a leprechaun. He was the edge leprechaun (laughs) that year. And I was just holding this little baby, and Jagger was holding him, and Paul, our producer, her husband was holding him. So he was kind of famous. Anyway, um, the reason I'm telling all this, and then the second child was born, but it was kind of like we were family for the station, for Mm -hmm. for our listeners. People knew my history and everything. And then we got fired and we moved to 105.3. And that was around the time that, you know, things went south with my wife and I. You know, I told Jagger and I told everybody what was going on. I said, but I don't want to talk about it. We're going to therapy. It's, things are going to work out or whatever. And this is what's weird, Ducky. You know, and I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. But we started getting calls. And we always made jokes about my wife cheating on me, how I was a loser and she was beautiful and why was she with such a plain-looking guy. And we always That was always our running gag, even when the babies were born and all this kind of stuff. So we kept up that front. But we started getting calls. Our producer would come in and say, hey, people are worried about you, Dean. Oh, wow. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, they, they want to know if everything's okay in your life. And we were all dumbfounded. We're like, we're not saying anything. We're not. We're doing what we've always done. And we would get people calling for a contest. And they and there's a thing I used to always say to people, love you, man. And people love that, you know. So if you call in, I knew your name was, I'd go, when you hang up, I'd go, love you, Ducky. And i go, love you, Dean. It was just this running gag. And so I'd say, hey, love you, man. And they would go, yeah, is, are you okay? <laughs> So they figured it out. It was weird. We had about 15, 20 different times where people knew. And we're like, what are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing that they can tell? So anyway, in the midst of that, we finally announced it. It's like, like, listen, you know, relationships don't work out. I still love my children very much. You know, My wife and I have just decided to go separate ways and all that kind of stuff. So then I started getting all these emails. And this was back in MySpace days. You know, on MySpace, like, hey, I'm sorry about your marriage. You want to have lunch? You want to talk about it? You know, and I knew even back then that your MySpace photo was not you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was you 12 years ago Mm -hmm. and 50 pounds ago. So uh, not there's anything wrong with being 50 pounds overweight. you got to be so sensitive these days. Look at me. I mean, look at me. Yeah. (laughs) This is all about within the last 10 years. i bloated up like a pregnant... So anyway, yeah, so there was a lot of action, as they say, going on where, and i would never been like that before. Now that I've been through it, you're going to cry, but it's kind of like, you know, I'm not a big fan of one-night stands. It's kind of, it's awesome and fun for a lot of reasons, but the next day, you're just, they're gone and it's empty, you know? Yeah. And I had a couple girlfriends, and I just realized I wasn't ready to do girlfriends at that point, so, you know, uh, but yeah, radio was pretty good for that. I wasn't rock star level or anything, but there's a couple that I still, they're still in my thoughts. (laughs)
0: Everyone is just stuck jumping in to say thank
1: you so much for checking out the
0: podcast today. If you dig it, please head over to our website at improvtx.com, where you can check out our calendar for all the upcoming shows in Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio. And don't forget to follow our social media, all links in the description. And with that, back to the
1: podcast.
0: What made you decide to start doing the workshop? I mean, how many years have you been doing it? I always ask and I forgot to ask.
1: Since 2000 or 2001. Yeah. So, so. what is that, 23 years? So, the way I got started, there's a guy named Sam Cox. Sam Cox was a guy in Austin and he started a stand-up workshop. It was called the Comedy Gym. And he used to fly from Austin to Dallas to San Antonio to whatever. And this was back when flights on Southwest were like 50 bucks. And so, he had a workshop. And I always wanted to do it, but Ducky, you know... The thing is, you're terrified of doing it. And, you know, the problem is you see Seinfeld or Bill Burr or whatever, and you think you have to be at that level to start. That's the big mistake. You don't. It's okay to fail for a long time. You know, everybody, Chris Rock had bad open mics. Louis C.K. had bad open mics. I mean, you got to start, but it's hard to accept that. And you want to just be instantly good. So, you know, at the time, workshops were really looked down upon, really looked down upon. And when I started taking Sam's class, you know, other comics I would run into would really crap on me for doing it you know. It's
0: so weird, like, because I bring up your class, and then people will be like, well, you don't need a class, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, uh, what's wrong with taking a class? Like, it's looked down on for some reason. And that bothers the hell, and we actually get very fired up about it. I actually, too. I had a conversation with somebody earlier, and they were like, why would you take a class? I was like, because? Like, there's so many things you don't know, just, but it gets down to the etiquette. Do you know what the light means? Do you know what this means? Like, it, when I took your class... When you say you shave five to ten years off, I believe that because
1: if you do what I say, yes, (laughs) absolutely.
0: Like the biggest thing was you taught for the first six months to a year, don't take the microphone out of the stand. Just leave it in the stand. You don't know how to work that microphone, and then when you get more comfortable, do that. So I don't pull the microphone out of the stand unless I have to.
1: Unless you have to, because you also you wander around a light, and you hold the mic too far away, and you're playing with the cord, and you just look amateurish. Yeah. So um, yeah. Crazy.
0: So, but anyhow, you were saying that you were getting people were kind of bullying you. Or... Yeah, it
1: was really bad back then. But you know, it helped me. It was good. It was mostly a writing class, like my class. I'm not trying to compare, but my classes. I tried to teach you much more about performing. There was like little or no performance technique. You know, it was just like write your jokes and recite them on stage. But it was teaching me how to write. You know, and and that's where I met Robert Hawkins. And I met some other people, and so it turned out to be really great. So, And I took it like three or four times. You know, people take my class three or four times, yeah. and I'm like, I get it because I'm, I'm stupid. I, I've got to <laughs> hear something ten times before it sticks. But then that went away, you know, and I started getting work at the improv and, and all this other stuff. And so what happened was is I was, was back in the 90s was going to open mics, and I would see so many people doing bad stuff. And I was just like, you know, but of course they are because they don't know. Mm-hmm. Nobody. And you try to give advice. No one wants to take advice. Everyone's like, I'll figure it out on my own. Or you're wrong. Or, you know, people in the workshop, I tell them stuff and they argue with me. And yeah. I'm like, I don't argue anymore. I'm just like, well, do what you want to do. So there's a, a comic named Judy Carter, woman named Judy Carter. And she wrote a book. She's written three different stand-up books. Another one is a because uh, she's gay. She wrote the Homo Handbook. <laughs> um, but she wrote a book called Stand-Up Comedy, the book. And I got that book. And it was helpful. But anyway, so Sam had put together, like, this workshop in Houston. And he invited, like, Gene Parrott, who was a head writer for Bob Hope for years, and he'd written some books on how to do comedy, how to write and sell your sense of humor. So Parrott was there, and he got Judy Carter to come there, and I went down there and everything. So I did my presentation on doing crowd work. And Judy and I just clicked. And she said, hey, do you want to come out to L.A.? I'd love for you to come out to L.A. You need to come out to L.A. You're wasting your time here. She was like a big proponent of me coming out there. And I was, you know, had a job and had a girlfriend and was terrified and blah, blah, blah. She goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'm doing a workshop like this in Big Bear. Big Bear? Is that what it is in California up in the mountains? I think that's what it is. She said, come out to that and just come and do your presentation and just see what it's like. You know, she was like a big fan of mine, which was great because I love And she gets slammed for writing a book and people are like, Judy Carter's process doesn't work. and You know, but look at, she, Maz Jobrani was a student mm. and all these other I things.
0: mean, I've read it. I'm the, the comedy Bible, right? Well,
1: the first one was stand-up comedy, the book. And then she wrote the comedy Bible. And then she wrote the new comedy Bible, which yeah. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute, too. Um, she's like, please come out. Why don't you do it? And I was like, well, let me just think about it. I need, you know, I was just, I don't remember who I said. that Someone was driving, you know, this is way up in the mountains. And someone was driving me down the mountains to get to the airport. Oh, because we'd seen a lot of celebrities. It's a big celebrity hangout. Like uh, some box, I think Riddick Bow was up there. And some, like three or four celebrities were up there. And so we were driving down the mountain. This girl was driving me back. And we were talking about comics. And I said, you know, I love Albert Brooks. She goes, oh, Albert Brooks is great, you know. And she said, so are you going to come out here or not? I know Judy wants I said, well, you know what? If I'd seen Albert Brooks in Big Bear, I would come out here. That would be my signal, (laughs) jokingly, right? This is so weird. So I get home and live in an apartment with a girlfriend, Carla, at the time. And I go in the apartment, and I start unpacking. And I turn on television, and there's an Albert Brooks movie on, Defending Your Life defending your life, which is a story about this guy. His philosophy is when you die, you don't go to heaven or hell right away. You go to a court trial and they review your life to decide whether you need to come back and live life again and learn the lessons or you get to move on. Rip Torn is, I don't know if you know Rip Torn. Rip Torn is his attorney. So there's a scene, as soon as I turn it on, Ducky, and again, I don't believe in this stuff, but every once in a while it happens. There's a scene where his attorney is showing all these accomplishments he's done in his life, Albert Brooks has done his life. And one of them is he's driving this snowmobile and he hits a log and falls off of it and falls down and breaks his leg. And he says, So when that happened, what did you do? He says, Well, I had to crawl almost two miles to get to help. And he goes, Well, where did this happen? No. He goes, Big Bear.
0: Oh my God. That's insane.
1: I got chills. Yeah. I got chills. I got to see Albert Brooks and Big Bear.
0: That's so crazy.
1: So that night when my girlfriend came home, I said, listen, I got this opportunity to go out to L.A. for a month, and I'm going to teach for Judy Carter, and uh, I think I should take it. So I went out, and I taught for her, and she taught me how to teach. And I started thinking, you know, this mixed with seeing a lot of bad comics, I'm going to do a workshop, you know, because Judy t- very different from what Sam Cox teaches, and I had my own philosophies and all that. So long-winded stories. So the first one I taught was on Greenville Avenue. I can't think of the name of the bar right now. Uh, but they used to do a lot of live comedy shows, and they let me have the room for like 50 bucks. So only two people showed up to the class, and then somehow I think Sean heard about, it, or someone at the Improv heard about it, or I think I just had the huevos to ask, and I started teaching it at the Improv. And this was on Saturdays when you know now they've got magic shows and open mics on Sundays, but they used to not have. They had defensive driving on the weekends. But I don't know, do you ever have to put up the walls that separate the room? And no, the that was before my time. Yeah, yeah, everyone hated that. So we put up the walls, and I would teach the stand-up class in the back room. And then after the Jagger thing, you know, it was something I would teach every once in a while. But then after, you know, being on radio, it was like just full steam ahead. And, you know, this is what I say when someone craps on stand-up classes. I say, listen, I'm not saying my fingerprints are on everything. But every bookable comic in Dallas yes. who's getting all the work are my graduates. Paul Varghese. Megan King, Barry Whitewater, David Jessup, uh, Angela Owen Walker, uh, Kirstie, uh, I can I never know. Hayden, Kirstie. Hayden, who's yeah. running the open mic. I mean, they've all been in my workshop. Now, I'm not saying they're doing exactly what, but there is, there is something going on there. Yes. And I would say I that's, that's my calling card.
0: I literally said that to somebody earlier today. I was just like, all the people that, that work went through Dean's class, and it's insane. So, what is it about the class that sets it apart? Like, you told me once, And you said, I'm not bragging, but I think I have the best class in town, right? I do. And so I actually went and took somebody else's class afterwards, and it did not go well. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it went terrible, terrible. But there was so much in your class that, like, there's so much information. There's so much that you give. I've considered taking your class again, too. Oh, you should do it, man. Because what it comes down to is, like, it's like when you read a good book. Like, I've read Slaughterhouse-Five multiple times in my Mm -hmm. life. I love that book. Every time I read it, something else sticks out to me. And so... It's, it's one of those things, though, that you, you go over everything, like everything to, you think yeah. of. Yeah, it's it's one of the best workshops, one of the best classes I've ever well, done. Well, can I
1: tell you one more quick story yes, about please. Judy Carter? So, you know, I adore her. And she saved my life during the pandemic because, you know, I was teaching online classes here mm-hmm. on, on Zoom. You know, she has a marketing machine and all this kind of stuff. I mean, she, you know, and I taught people from Russia and, and France and Canada, Canada yeah. all over the world. I mean, yeah, our friend came from Canada. But, you know, she saved my life because she was like, I want you to teach the classes. So it was, she only does five classes. And a thing she does that I don't do, but I still explain it, is that she assigns you your topic. The first class, she goes, here's what your jokes are going to be about. And a lot of people, you know, the second class, they all tell me, I don't want to do those things. (laughs) But the genius of Judy Carter is, you know, I let everybody kind of do what they want to do. My only criteria, you may remember this, is like, it's got to be something that matters to you. Mm -hmm. And that's going to show on stage. If you're just trying to be funny to be funny... That's a dead end. It's got to be something that's really under your skin that bothers you, that you hate it whatever. But Judy's thing is, no, you're going to do this one thing, and here's her reasoning. Because she's in L.A., and in L.A., when talent scouts come out to see you and see a three-minute or a five-minute set, funny is like the fifth thing they're looking for. They're like, does he look good on television? Is this someone we've never seen before? Is this a type we can use? Oh, wow. Is this someone who seems intelligent? And are they funny? So Judy's thing is, If they come and see you and you cover eight topics in five minutes, they're like, funny, but I don't know what their sets, I don't understand. But if your set is struggling with my weight and you do three-minute set on that, then they're like, oh, the struggling with the weight guy. Yeah. It's genius. She understands the business. But here, as I say, I was asked this question last night in the class. I'm like, no one's getting discovered in Addison, Texas. There's no talent scouts who are like, let's leave LA and go to Addison, see what's going on there. It just doesn't happen. Or Dallas. But anyway, so from teaching with Judy, she told me, she goes, you know, I'm just done with this. She goes, I've been teaching for 35 years. She's been teaching since the 80s. And she goes, and I want to get into stand-up. You know, she's got this one-woman show that I saw, which is a mixture of magic, and it talks about her family. It was great. And she wants to do stand-up again. She goes, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm just retiring the class. And she goes, if anyone calls and wants to do it, I'm going to send them your way. Like, oh, my God, that's great, Judy. And then, you know, it's hard not to get emotional about this. And it may be the L.A. thing just to say, but I don't think Judy's that way. I think this is sincere. She told me, she said, you know, because she's in her 70s. She goes, you know, when I pass away, I put in my will that you get the book. What? I was like, what do you mean I get the book? She goes, it made 60 grand last year. Just all the profits go to you. You. She goes, you're the only person I've ever worked with who knows how to teach. Wow. I know. So I hope this doesn't come across as bragging, but it's just you're asking what's different. I mean, I think a lot of people teaching stand-up classes are not stand-ups or they're very new to the game. Like I had one student and then like six months later she was teaching at Stomping Grounds, I think. And I'm not discount. I'm not making fun of. It's just you know I rarely get a question I don't know the answer to. I rarely asked something. Again, I'm humble bragging, but <laughs> I don't think I'm telling you the right thing. And and people will argue it. And then I've had people come back six months later and go, you know, you were right. I thought yeah. you were a jerk. I thought you were an idiot. I thought I knew better. But you know, um, so you know, I think what I have that no, you know, I teach it's the performance. And uh, you know, I'm really kind of persnickety about people getting the workbook and sharing it with friends and stuff but Barry Whitewater said something that talked me off the ledge he goes he goes even if someone gets the workbook he says they're not getting you he yeah. says it's he says the workbook is very cut and dried but unless you explain some of that stuff no one's going to get it anyway and even when you do explain it it takes them three times to get it not that I'm purposely making it hard but you know ducky it's hard it's a hard it looks so simple because you're here at the club you see all these guys girls go up and they're hilarious and they're just standing there and talking you know, and you're like, Well, I'm funny with my friends and family. I could I could replicate that on stage, but it's it's not the same. It's the elusive obvious. Yeah. It's, the elusive obvious.
0: It's so different, but I love it. It's so much fun.
1: Are you going up? Are you doing uh, stuff? I haven't
0: went up during Christmas, during hmm. December, I went out of Santa Claus and did a Santa Claus, a clean Santa Claus set. I love that. Yeah. So I went to as many open mics as I could and I just wanted to do it to bring joy. Yeah, it was practice and it was fun. But like I started the set super clean and i my problem with my set is it's super dirty. Because I made the same mistake every comedian usually does, which is I want to get all this dirty stuff out. And it's terrible. And I know that now. And so I'm working on a clean set. But for the Santa set, it was clean, 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 clean in the window at the end. And then slammed with like a kind of a dirty joke at the end. But it worked. And so it really worked. But like working clean is hard. Like it's really hard. Like you said, people come up to you six months later. And say, hey, I was wrong. This is me saying that to you <laughs> oh, because, because well, they, yeah. yeah, you taught that. But I knew that the whole time that that I was like, I should work clean. But I had a friend say to me, he goes, "You're never going to get booked." I go, "I know." I said, "Oh, I, from working dirty." Yeah, I said, "I know." I said, "For me, this is all just getting over stage right at this point." But now that yeah. I'm a year, over a year in, I realize like, hey, maybe there is the possibility of getting booked. Maybe I need to go start working out a clean set, and like the challenge of it is so amazing because. When you get to something like the twist, you know, mm-hmm. and then you get to the punchline, coming up with a clean version of that is good. And like I said, it's not terrible. I begin the first three minutes talking about my weight because something you taught in your classes: people's perception of you when you get on stage. You got it. You address got to Address it right away. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big guy, 300 and something pounds, right? So the first thing I say is either it's weird. I begin with that because you're very big about using
1: emotion words, emotion words
0: yeah. and then I go into it. Or I say, hey, everyone, my name is Duck, and I suffer from anorexia. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just fat. And then uh-huh. I go into I'm so fat I walked up here like a <laughs> parade float. I just curse. <laughs> but, like, that's the thing is I address it. And so mm-hmm. many comedians don't address, like, what the audience is thinking or what you look like, you know, right. like what you're wearing or your, your shoes cheap or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's fun, though, to address it. And there was something that was really amazing. I was talking to a comedian called Ryan Joseph. And he's really good. He's really good at dark, like very smart. Is um, he local? Comedy. No, he's uh, he's in uh, L.A. right okay. now. And he, uh, he said about perception, he goes, I didn't realize, like, when I was on stage telling these jokes, what the audience thought of me. But What they thought is I'm dumb. And I had to start to play into that yeah. and become the dumb person on stage. So I say these jokes, and he's not like conceited or anything, but he knows his jokes are good. But he acts like he's stupid and that makes the jokes land. Yeah. It's 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 insane. So one of the things I've struggled with is finding a stage persona. And I always say that. Mm-hmm. And so many people have told me, just be yourself. Right. And and get up there and just be genuine yourself. So hopefully it'll come with time. I know that sometimes it takes time. Some people are lucky and they get it right away. But, you know, that's something I've struggled with.
1: So I would say, you know, it's a thing I always heard is you got to find your voice on stage. you got to find your voice on stage. I'm, I'm kind of making this up, but I only think there's like 12 topics that work in comedy clubs. You know, something that's too vague or something that's too out there, it's, it's really hard to make that. You know, the big things are relationships, dating, family, childhood. I don't know what the twelfth. I always say twelve, and I need to sit down one day and go. There's actually twenty-two, or there's actually only eight, but there's really only so many topics that work. And so the problem we all have is how can we talk about a topic that's every topic's way overdone? But how do you bring something fresh to it? And so I used to wonder, well, what is my voice, and what am I doing? And da 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 da. And then the thing I started to notice because I was very lucky to get to work with a lot of comics, like Brian Regan, for example. Brian Regan off stage is the same guy he is on stage. Like he doesn't put on this persona; he's just bigger. He's just himself, but it's magnified. Because he's kind of a, have you, ever t- have you ever talked to Brian or anything? No, no. Greatest guy in the world. Very sweet. But he's just, he still kind of does that Brian Reganish thing when he's off stage. And then I've talked to other comics and ones I really like, like George Lopez. You know, George on stage is just George Lopez heightened. Mm-hmm. He's not putting on this armor or this voice or this different character. Now, your friend figured out that he needs to be done with that. So I'm not saying that stuff doesn't work. Like Larry the Cable guy, I think off stage is a very intelligent guy from yes. what I've heard. But he plays that dumb hit guy, right? So you gotta figure that out. This is part of the reason you gotta go up for a few years to figure these things out. Over audience, over audience, again and again, you kind of begin to see a pattern. But my big thing is, I think this, is, I think I said this in your class, but I think finding your voice is crap. Because I think what it does is it makes you think of how can I create this thing that I'm not? You know, there's something about me that I don't realize and I've gotta do more of that. And I think it's it's a fool's errand in many ways because you've seen this. People on stage, they're one way and then they get on stage and there's something else entirely. And it's not working. I mean, if it's working, that's great. But it's not, you know, it's like almost an actor's approach to stand-up. So my big philosophy, when I thought a long time about this, I think everybody already has their voice. Because if you're funny with your friends and family, you're already a funny person. Now, funny offstage isn't onstage funny. There's that issue also because you got to structure it. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of telling stories unless you're the headliner because the audience, you know, a story takes you on a 20, 30, 45 second journey before there's a punchline. Right. And making the audience pay attention and they didn't come to see you. They came to see Dave Chappelle and they got to sit through your lame story about your grandma. You're, <laughs> it's too much to ask. If you can make that story funny every 12 seconds, that's one thing, but usually it's not. Yeah. You know, what you got to think of is, well, what do I do? in my life that makes my friends and family laugh. I don't need to write jokes about that necessarily, but, you know, that's when I'm funny. What is the thing I... Is it my point of view? Is it the way I carry myself? Whatever it is. But I really do think at the end of the day, you just play a bigger version of yourself. You play a different... And, but when Aaron first started, he did a lot of imitations. He did like Ray Romano and this other stuff. And I don't know if I told him or Chuck told him or came through Paul, I don't know. But all we all had this thing we wanted to tell him and eventually heard it was like, you know... You're good at that stuff, but that's not you at any point. Like, the audience doesn't know who you are. You're just a guy, you know, when you're set, you're just a guy who does imitations. And is that bookable? We've got 500 of those. And that's when I think Aaron shifted. I hope it doesn't mind me telling the story. But he shifted. (laughs) I think Aaron's a fantastic comic. But he doesn't do that stuff anymore because, you know, there's a phrase I use, hiding behind your material. People who are hiding behind their material. And that's what I think a lot of blue comic, a lot of, this is the reason people are dirty at first is it so much easier to tell a sex joke than talk about how you're going through a divorce. It's so much easier to do some kind of body function thing versus talking about how you are going through something emotional. It's easy to hide behind your material. So that's my thing about The Voice. I'm sure other people would go, no, you're wrong. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that's just, that's been my lesson I've learned over time is from hanging out with great comics. On stage, they're just themselves. Yeah. It's the same person. Just, I mean, they have material that they've honed and everything but it's just them exaggerated heightened they're just a little bit bigger version of that so you don't have to create that and that's why you know when i got started everyone was like it's going to take you five to seven years to get good five to seven years to find your voice now i don't think six months is when you're going to find all that stuff but i think if you go up you know when we talked about how many open mics are in dallas if you go up two or three times a week and different clubs all the time don't have a home club you know people will have a home club and they get good at that room but then they can't work anywhere else that's a mistake. You know, do all the crap, but you're trying to find your voice. And one of the ways you can do it, no one does this, is after the show, hang out and talk to the audience. This is what Paul Varghese does. You know, he still does this today. When he's done, he'll say, hey, I'm going over to Pete's. It's closed now. But I'm going over to Pete's. You guys want to come over have a drink? Come on. Or after the show, at the back door, he'll hang out and he'll have an audience of six or eight people. And he'll talk to people and get their emails. And I'm going to friend you. And yeah. But part of the thing is when you're talking to people after the show, I don't know exactly how to do it, but find out. You know, they're like, we love you. You go, oh, man, that means so much. Thank you. What, what did I do? What did you like? And if you start hearing this thing over and over and over again, like, you know, you do this crazy voice. I love that crazy voice. Now you're beginning. So that's you exaggerated. You got to use the crazy voice more on stage. And you've seen this, Ducky, how many people, headliners or features who come in from all over the country, and they just have this little thing they do that, you know, like Jim Gaffigan, for example, his thing is he self-heckles. Like, he'll do, like, ten bacon jokes and go, if this guy does one more bacon joke, we're going to leave. <laughs> I understand that. Here's another thing about bacon. Yeah,
0: the audience's voice, yeah. Yeah, the
1: voice of the audience. Yeah. So right. I think that, you know, if you want to do stand-up, you've got to figure out what is it about you that's funny, not this pursuit of a voice. But, again, I'm wrong because some people do. Like, this guy you're talking about, he's cre- He's figured it out. Oh, i got to be stupid. You know, people love that. So he's playing that. But the other thing, here's the other thing about a voice. Can you do that for 50 years? You know, like George Carlin is is an example. So when George Carlin started, you know, he was very middle of the road. He was actually part of a comedy team, but he was very middle of the road. And then he started getting into his hippie phase. So he was in his hippie phase and a lot of drug jokes and a lot of this and a lot of that. But then Bill Hicks, who was a great comic, he saw Bill Hicks. This is a famous story. Do you know this story? No. George Carlin saw Bill Hicks and he goes, you know what? I'm not tending to my garden. That was his phrase. He realized Hicks was very personal and was dark. Carlin never told a joke about his family he was never personal he was always an observational comic and he stayed with that but you can see I can't think of the name of the special now but there's one where he's doing his set in a graveyard the set is a graveyard <laughs> and it's dark and he talks about auto asphyxiation and he talks about all these really dark topics and he went really dark for a while and then towards the end of his life you know he he just was he kind of became the cranky old man yeah just complaining about everything but he evolved you know and my point is, that 70s hippie guy, that wouldn't work in the 90s. He would have had a fan base who came to see it, but like like Andrew Dice Clay, you know, Megan King, great comic, she worked with him, and she said, yeah, his audience, you know, they expect that, you know, Hickory Dickory Dock, yeah. the, the dirty things, because that's what he's famous for. But I didn't see the set, it's not fair, and she didn't really say this, but I think he's just playing the greatest hits to, you know, he's a, trying to think of a band that's like this, you know. He's the Rolling Stone. I don't think anyone is in their 20s at a Rolling Stone concert. It's all sixty year It totally
0: makes sense. And when you say be yourself my well, podcast, you saw at the beginning, like, hey everybody, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's just an increased version of myself. And yeah, that's all it is. and so that makes perfect sense. I want to ask you, what was this Joe Rogan
1: story? You know? Oh yeah, yeah, the Joe Rogan story. So this was in two thousand and five or something. And so the Jagger Show, we're on one oh five three. And what was great about that is you know when we were on the edge we had to play music so we only had like 2 or 3 minutes but on 1053 it's a talk radio show so we would go on and on and on about stuff so Rogan was here at the improv and he came by he came in this was before the podcast and all that stuff i think he was still on that reality show Fear Factor Fear Factor so he was famous you know and he was he doesn't you know he had hair back then he was more you know he's i wouldn't mess with the guy but he was you know a thinner younger version of himself oh. And he came in, you know, and usually when someone comes in, they do a 10-minute segment, maybe two 10-minute segments, and then we brush them off and they got to go. He stayed on the entire time. He was like, this is so much fun, I don't want to leave. And he had us all convinced, Ducky, that the moon landing never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he sensed his recanted. He goes, yeah. no, it happened. But he had us all, because we would say, well, what about this? He goes, well, what about that? We're like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And <laughs> we were like, we never went to the moon. He had us totally convinced But Mondo Mike, who's on the show, we've made this joke a couple times, we joke like we inspired his podcast. Yeah. Because we really, it became a pod, you know, we were on local radio, but it was like a podcast where we just were talking. He was a fascinating guy, very, very funny, and we had a blast with him. He stayed on the entire show. Yeah. And he even said, I think Trey was he goes, cancel the other shows. I just want to do this one. <laughs> so, so that
0: so that was probably the opening, like you said, that was the catalyst right there.
1: Of course it wasn't. Oh, but, but it's it fun to been. it's fun to make that. It
0: might have been, you know. Because it was know.
1: all about controversy and then we're bring up other stuff. He goes, What about this? You know, he was very he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. And, you know, people get you know, politics are so mixed up now and people tag him as a right wing comic. I think he's more like just a poker bear kind of guy. Yes. I think that's what his job is. I think he's probably liberal minded. Maybe, I don't know, but well, I think he's like more most just... most people. Yeah.
0: You're neither left nor right. Most people fall in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I view it, but they love to go after him for some reason.
1: Well, I think, you know, once you become number one, everyone wants to tear you down. Yeah. Everyone wants to do, I mean, you wouldn't you love Rogan's numbers?
0: Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome.
1: And you see, again, it's the lie of stand-up. You see, well, they're just standing there talking. I could do that. If I could get Elon Musk and the guy who was abducted by aliens and the, this and this, my show would go through the roof, too. yeah. But he's really a good interviewer. He's really good at that. Yeah, and right?
0: and he's interested in things, and he's passionate, and that's the key thing. And that's why I love doing this podcast. I call it the act out because yeah, I heard that. I love the that. The act out is the hardest thing for me, and that's one of the things that you teach in your classes. You have to do the act out. So I remember like talking about you know why are people so fat in Texas? Is it because we're kind of like bass in a pond? We keep getting bigger and bigger. And you said to me, act that out. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that scene look like? One fish talking to another. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> but you do that in your sets. You always have the act out. You do the voices. You know, if you've done it during this podcast, you mm-hmm. do the characters. And then you always accentuate with the act out. And so for me, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. And that's the one thing I noticed. The comics that are good in DFW, they all do the act
1: out. They all do the act out. They well, know. I'll share this with you. So this is the thing I took from Judy Carter. One of the biggest problems is that everyone has really long setups. And they... It's like a story, you know, like my brother's car broken down, you know, and the mechanic was a jerk. And, um, you know, it's a weird thing when you're trying to buy a new car. So you got three ideas and then you have a punchline. The idea is like, I don't understand what the target is. I don't understand. It's I, be. I
0: agree with you. And I've argued this with people. Like, they're like, well, you can have a 45 second setup. I was like, no, stop. Like, unless you're doing a punchline. At the end of every, like you said, 12 seconds, 10 seconds, you're not Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle has mastered the storytelling because he gets you to laugh in between and you don't even realize it. Exactly. And I, I've argued this with people and I, and I get very angry about it because yeah. I'm like, you're insane. Like, yeah. like how are you going to keep somebody's attention for 45 seconds?
1: And Dave Chappelle, they, the audience will give him three minutes without being funny because they're thrilled to be in the room with Dave Chappelle. Yeah. You are doing. I always make the joke a, a set at a burned-out Long John Silver's, and <laughs> I, you know, in uh, Mesquite, Texas, in front of four people, three of them can't speak English. It's not, you it's know, not happening. So, so this is a thing, and I think I taught this in your class when you took it too. But for everyone listening, get out your pens and pencils. <laughs> so for a setup, you know, here's the ingredients of a good setup: emotion, topic, act out. Rinse and repeat. Do that again and again and again. Now, I know when I say that, your first objection is, well, won't the audience see the pattern? No. They (laughs) don't see the pattern. Just as the example I always give, you know, movie scripts have a pattern. There's a structure to a movie script. And one of the structures is, at 20 minutes in, that's when the hero gets the call to adventure. That's when the thing happens where they decide to change their life, right? So if you look at A New Hope, Star Wars, I always use that example. Luke Skywalker got these new droids. But he's still a farm boy. He's still stuck at the farm. And he meets Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Obi-Wan gives him the lightsaber. And Obi-Wan, you know, is like, you should leave this. He goes, I can't. My life. i got to get home. And then when he gets home, and Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru have been burned to death by the stormtroopers, right? And then he says, well, I guess I'll go to Moss Eisley with you. There's nothing left for me here. It's in 20 minutes. Roughly. There's a structure there, Right. So there's a structure for stand-up, and a lot of people, but I tell my stories to my friends and family. I just want to tell my stories on stage. Go and do that. That's fine. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm just going to tell you you're never going to get work at the improv. You're never going to get work on the road. But so-and-so tells stories because they're famous and the audience, and they tell a story after 20 minutes of crushing the audience, you know. So you got to put it in. Emotion, and so emotion words, I'm teaching the class right now. So there's eight emotion words. They're all negative. Why are they negative? The reason they're negative is you've got to have conflict in your story. There has to be something wrong. A lot of people get on stage and go, you know, I really love my wife, and she's great, and she's everything I wanted, you know, but there's one little tiny thing she does that kind of drives me a little crazy. I'm like, dude, so everyone write this down. Soft emotions result in soft laughs. You've got to be mean. You've got to hit the target. You've got to say what's wrong with it. I'm not saying you got to be a jerk. Again, Brian Regan, look at him. He's very gentle about everything, but he's still, you can tell underneath Brian is a seething psychopath. You know, he's pissed off about this stuff. (laughs) So I'm just going to give you four emotion words to use. They're hard, weird, scary, stupid. Just use those four. There's actually eight, but I'm not going to confuse things. You need to take the workshop. You'll find the other four out. Absolutely. So you have a problem, you know. You have a problem. So let's, let's use you, Ducky. So your weight. So example... When you go to the doctor, what's the thing about your weight? Have you gone to the doctor about yeah. your weight? Well, what's the thing the doctor does that bothers you?
0: Uh, they point it out <laughs> immediately. Right. And one of my jokes begins with, it's weird because emotion. Mm-hmm. I went to the doctor the other day, and she said I was fat. Right. But she said I look good for being fat, which kind of dampened the blow. Okay. So you see what I'm saying? So I use right. that it's weird, and I state the thing like like you taught.
1: Yeah, you know? that's perfect. Now, here's the other thing. So an act out. What is an act out? So an act out is, there's a couple different ways to look at it. And every joke, if you use an emotion word, you're always doing an act out because you have to act out the emotion word. In other words, you have to say it with conviction. You can't say, you know, I really hate driving in Dallas. If you say it like that, the audience is saying, well, it doesn't sound like you hate it. Why are you saying you hate it? You sound indifferent about it. But if you say, I hate driving in Dallas. Dallas traffic is the worst. I hate it. Now you're acting out the emotion. So that's one act out. But the other act out is, who is the person or the thing you're talking about? act that thing out. Now, as a little side note, your act outs don't have to be amazing. No one knows what your doctor sounds like. No one knows what your mom sounds like. No one knows what anyone sounds like. And act outs are not just a change in voice, but it could be a change in the way you stand on stage. So for this joke, ducky, you could do when you're talking to the doctor, you're looking to your left. When the doctor's talking, she's looking to her right, right? But you're still explaining it. And so what I would pitch, so now here's the workshop. What I would pitch is get to the act out as soon as you possibly can. Now, you're doing that by doing the emotion word, but also act out the other person, okay? So I hate going to my doctor because as soon as I wa- immediately. Wow, Ducky, you've kind of put on a few hands. Yeah. I mean, you look good. You seem healthy, but wow, you're a little, you're tipping the scales, honey. Get to the act out immediately. Because, so here's the reason why. I'm not criticizing, but the way you said it before, you're kind of telling us what happened. Yeah. But when you act it out, you paint a picture. And the audience loves that you're doing something. The big mistake is everyone thinks the act out has to be funny. Sometimes it is, and if it's funny, then we'll take that. If you didn't write it to be funny, but it still gets a laugh, then that's great. You know, one of my favorite things at the showcase is someone who's never been on stage, they'll do an act out and the audience laughs and they actually say, to the audience, that's not the funny part. <laughs> I'm like, dude, yes, it is. if they think it's funny, it's the funny part. Mm. It may not be a well structured joke, but anyway, so you take a problem. Now you could say, here's how a lot of people would do it. You know, I'm 50 pounds overweight and it's because of COVID and I'm really struggling with it. And I Got winded the other day going up the stairs, so I figured I really got to go to the doctor. So I finally go to the doctor. And when I get there, it really kind of bothers me that she immediately starts talking about how fat I am. How many topics are in there? Yeah. COVID and going upstairs and gaining weight. It's just I hate going to my doctor because she immediately brings up my weight. Well, hey there, Dustin. I'm sorry, Dustin. Hey (laughs) there, Ducky. Dustin's my middle name. Okay, very good. I knew that. that. I'm also a psychic. (laughs) Hey, honey, you're really kind of big. You're really kind of overweight, you know? So... Get to it right away because that's the first thing. What's the first thing I always say? Stand-up is a performance art. Mm -hmm. It's all about your performance. It's not standing there and talking. You know, everyone thinks, well, I'm just going to recite my jokes. You can tell these people. And you're like, that's a well-written idea. But anyone can do that because you're just a robot. You're just regurgitating words. How do you feel about it? What's the act out? How are you performing it? Do something. Then the second thing, that's all the first thing. The second thing I'll tell you um, is the punchline. How do we figure out the punchline? So there's many structures but one of the simplest ones is the assumption joke. And what you do is, if you want to write an assumption joke, once you have the setup, don't worry about the assumption joke till after you write the setup. Don't worry about any punchline till after you write the setup. Do the setup first. That's the foundation of your house. Then the walls are the jokes. You got to have a foundation before you build the walls. If you think of something funny, then screw what I just said. But overall, this is the process. I've got a problem. I'm going to narrow it down to one thing, and now my punchline. So you write down the setup. You know, I hate when I go to the doctor and she immediately brings up my weight. And then do the act out now you write down these questions who what where when why and how basic questions if you ever take a writing class you know and then you want to try you can't always do this but you want to try and come up with at least two answers for each of those questions so who is involved in this so it's you and it's the doctor okay there's your two who's where this happens at the doctor's office it happens at a hospital Uh, When? Uh, This happened recently and it happened at my appointment. Why? Because I am 50 pounds overweight and because it's the doctor's job. So you figure out all these logical things, right? Now with those, you're now going to look at, so what you're doing is you're figuring out the assumptions people would make when they hear that piece of information. I went to the doctor, she mentioned my weight right away, you do an act out. So they're assuming a lot of different things, right? One of the things they're assuming is it happened at a doctor's office. So now once you have those logical answers, you now look at those but most modern American comedy is based on incongruity. The reason I say that is England's a little bit different, but it's based on incongruity. Two things that don't go together makes people laugh. Two unlike things mixed somehow. So you start thinking of the opposite of all the things you listed. So one of the things you listed was in her office. And you think, well, what's the opposite? Or what's another? Inc- where should this never happen? So now the joke becomes, I hate visiting my doctor because she immediately, like, you know, Ducky, you're really like 50 pounds overweight. I really need to do something about that. It's really, really bad. And the thing I hate is she had to say that at Walmart. It's an assumption that it happened yeah. at the doctor. It's a simple joke, right? Or, you know, when did it happen? It happened at the doctor's appointment. So you think, well, what's the opposite of the doctor's appointment? So that's like a serious thing. What's a fun thing? What's a frivolous thing? What's something wacky? So the joke could be, you know, I hate going to my doctor because she always immediately brings up, or I hate, I hate when I see my doctor because she immediately brings up my weight. You know, you're a little overweight. We need to do something about 50 pounds overweight. It's very bad for you. Why do you always tell me this after sex? <laughs> Switch it, right? Yeah. Now, that may not be what happened, but the point is the setup, not the punchline. Right. Okay? So there you go, everybody. There's a free lesson.
0: And that's what the workshop is. That's it's what the workshop a, it's is. It's so much information. One of the things I always ask comedians is, what advice do you have for any upcoming comedian? Mm-hmm. You you have all the advice. Right. In the I workshop, try. you've got to take the workshop. Like, you've got to go take the class. And like I said, people who are kind of poo-pooing the class, I fight them. I get very passionate about it because I went through the class and I... I feel like it taught me so much, and it gave me the courage to get on stage. Good. And one Good. of the Good. things that, that you do in the class, I believe in person, is you let people get on stage, right, and play with the microphone, and have the lights in their face, and all that stuff, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's so I'm so grateful, you know, because I used to teach here at the Improv, and then things, whatever happened, I couldn't teach here for a long time, and now Tom, the owner... So why don't you teach it on Monday night? And I didn't know if Monday nights were going to be great, but they let me have Monday nights. And then I also i am squeezing one in Sunday mornings from 10.30 to 2 because at 3 is the open mic here. So I've got two classes coming up. You know, the Sunday class is about halfway done, but the other one's wrapping up soon. But my point is, you know, I was teaching it at a place called Media Tech, which is a film school, which is great, but there's no lighting, there's no mic, there's no stage. But here... You know, last night I had eight people, and it was just like this. We had the lights, the mic live, and people are performing. And so it's going to be so much better because when they, like the media tech people, when they would come on stage, the first it's the first time they'd ever been on the improv stage, It's so intimidating. But now everyone's been running through their sets again and again and again and again. And so this is more homish. You know, that's yeah. that was another thing that helped me is I used to teach defensive driving here, and this stage became my home. I was, got so comfortable with it. So, and there's an awful joke I do about it. But it's true uh, that I met my ex-wife when I was teaching defensive driving, and she was in the class for going 97 miles an hour, <laughs> which is really fast for a broom.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. It's awesome.
1: And I told my son that, and then he went and told her, and oh. she I <laughs> I know. And we're, you know, we're it is it is what it is. But anyway, the point is, he said that he told her. I was like, Logan. And he goes, no, she thought it was funny. Yeah. So I have her permission.
0: There you go. Yeah. And that's what you need. I mean, seriously, sometimes like what I call privilege in comedy, like you were talking about, you have to set up, you had the person who was telling, the lady was telling Mexican jokes, you know? Right. You've got to set up why you feel like you have that privilege or do you have that privilege to say certain things. Yeah. And so... Like with my comedy, I, I think I've told you this before, my ex was trans, right? Mm-hmm. So I tell trans jokes, but I also have an insight. And I try not to tell them from her perspective. I tell them from my perspective. Right. The audience just isn't ready for trans jokes, though, I think. It's, it's a touchy yeah. subject, too. So when I tell those jokes, people are just like, oh, that's very uncomfortable waters.
1: Yeah, I know. But remember like 20 years ago how gay marriage would just like pitchforks and torture yeah, people? Yeah. Would get so. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're gay. Like it's yeah. – I know there's still people who don't like it. But even the Pope, you hear the Pope recently, he goes, well, it's a sin, but it's not bad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, where
1: were you in 1910? Yeah. You... And
0: it changed rather quick, which was nice, you know? Like. I and so he... I think
1: trans will go that same way. Yeah. It's just people, you know. But um, here's one of the rules of comedy. Here's what most people make the mistake of, is they say, you know what's wrong with gay people? You know what's wrong with black people. You know how stupid this group is or that group is. You know the problem with all women. And so that's part, I think, that's part of the problem. You make a generalization that everyone is that way. That's part of what fires people up. So there's a world of difference between going, you know, like a stereotype. is You know, black people are always late. There's a difference between that and saying, you know, it's, it's it's hard to have a friend. He's always late. I'm like, why are you always late, man? What's a black guy thing, dude? So now I'm talking about my friend who's black, and he admitted it. I still don't know if that's always going to work, but that's much better that it's, you know, you have the right to talk about your personal experience. And again, with this student, you know, she was making these Mexican things and in her heart, she's very sweet. I don't think in her heart she meant anything, but I was just told her and Barry Whitewater was here with me last night and he agreed to like, you're like cute little white woman and it looks like you're slamming all Mexican people. And she mm. goes, but I used to date. I said, well, then do jokes about that. So this joke, you got to have permission to tell this joke. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, who's, co- who's the one, somebody, anyway. The point is, you know, you'll see somebody who gets away with it, but you got to realize you're not a headliner. You, mm-hmm. know? you can't do things that headliners do. And let me ask you this. Does the improv ever have people walking because they're offended by the shows?
0: Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. Does that happen a lot still? Absolutely. I mean, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's something that People talk about a lot is their fear of walking rooms, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Or walking guests, you know? No one wants that to happen. Everyone wants to have a good time and laugh, you know? Yeah. So it's just one of those things where, yeah, it happens quite a bit with these comedians. There's a lot of comedians who do that. Like, Because my personal opinion is 45 minutes to an hour as a headliner is perfect. More than enough. That's enough. But anything more than that, you're really challenging the audience. Mm -hmm. To be funny after that, because they've already watched a host and a feature and now they've got to watch you, and that that gig is completely different. I know I I don't know because I've never done it, but it's very complicated, you know, especially with check drop and everything.
1: Yeah, um, and they've already dropped the checks. There's last call, and now yeah. they got to sit there another half hour and can't eat or drink.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very complicated. It's a job. big ask.
1: Do you still have people who come to see the headliner and they walk them? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to me. Yeah, it's like insane. Bob Saget, you know, who's really a sweet guy, and sorry he died so tragically and everything, but you know, I worked with him once. And uh, he's filthy, Ducky. Mm-hmm. He's
2: <laughs> filthy.
1: But his audience is, they grew up on Full House where he was America's dad. And he even addresses it right away. He goes, just so you know.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and he walks people. And I think, you know, Bill Hicks, again, you know who Bill Hicks was Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a special about him called Life is a Roller Coaster. It's coaster. an amazing special. It's an amazing special. But yeah. a couple comics, I can't remember who, but they talk about how he liked walking the room. Yeah. Because he, he had a Jesus complex. He had a... This is the truth, and you need to hear it even though it's going to hurt you. And I saw him many times walk a room. I don't know if I ever told you this story. It's a great story. Here at the Addison Improv, I came to see him one night. It, was a corp- it wasn't a It was a corporate event, but it was around Christmas time, and 70% of the room was Exxon. It was a big corporate event, and they came here to see Bill Hicks. He's on stage, Ducky, and he's just, you know, he's very smart, but he starts dying, dying really bad. And he sits on this stool. I think it's the same stool. And he just takes a drop of cigarette. <sighs> he goes, you know, I, I can tell you all don't think I'm that funny. But I will tell you this. I've never told a joke that wiped out an entire coastline. (laughs) This is right after the Exxon Valdez spill. Comics, we fell to our knees, not only because it was so funny, but the guts to do that. Mm -hmm. And what a genius line. I never wrote a joke that wiped out an entire coastline. And he just took a draw off a cigarette, and he just kept going. You know, that's another great lesson. here on this stage, I saw Jerry Seinfeld bomb. Oh, wow. And just put this in perspective. So this was back, this was before the Seinfeld show. He was big for being on The Tonight Show so many times. Seinfeld hadn't even been started. But he was here Thursday through Sunday. And Thursday there was a one show, and then Friday, Saturday, two shows, right? So the Thursday night show, he shows up. The room is packed. And it wasn't even this big back then. You know, they've expanded it. But it was a sold-out show. And there's about 40 or 60 people who just came to hope to get tickets. And the press was here, you know, local television stations. And it was electrifying, you know. He walked on stage. It was an amazing thing to see. So they came to him and said, listen, there's like 60 people who want to see a show. Do you want to do another show? And I think in his contract, he got paid X number of dollars per show. It didn't matter what the attendance was. He was going to get, you know, another, I'm pulling this out of my, <laughs>
2: he's going to
1: get another 5000 for doing another set or whatever. So he agreed. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So these 80 people, so you got to keep in mind, it's Thursday night late. I think the show started, by the time he got on stage, it was 11, right? These people had to beg to get in. You know, the staff was grumpy. Because they had to stay for an extra show. You know how that gets.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, The service wasn't fantastic. Not that the staff isn't fantastic. But, you know, it was just a surprise to everybody. And the opener didn't do well. I think it was just an opener and then him, I think. The opener didn't do that well. And then he gets on stage, and everyone was like, yay. Like, they're tired. (laughs) But there's a reason I'm telling this story. He still did 45 minutes. And after about six minutes, the thrill of being in the room with him was gone. And it just was crickets. Quiet. Oh, no. He didn't sweat. He did his set. He didn't rush. He still committed to every bit. Like that audience, I was in the back almost crying because I was like, of course, this is what you do. Versus what do we see? Someone goes up, they start bombing. They start to blame the audience. Yeah. They start going blue. They don't do their time and on and on and on. He's a comedy god because not, he, he's he got 10 million other shows. He knows he's funny. And this just was a bad call and it's going to roll off his shoulders and he's still going to give him a show. You guys wanted to see a show? Here's the show. And it was life-changing for me. I was like, that's one reason I love that guy so much is he didn't – it didn't bother him at all. He's – he's his armor cannot be penetrated because he just knew – I'm sure enough bad sets over time, he realized, you know, and he's best friends with Leno, and Leno, I'm sure, would do the same thing. They didn't bring it up. They didn't talk to the audience. They didn't try and do crowd work. That's my go-to. If I do two jokes don't work, I'm like, so where are you guys from? <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> You're good at it, though. That's one of the things, like, one of my favorite times seeing you on stage – the way you ended, you were talking to, uh, right there, table one. You were saying to them, like, how long have you been married? When's your anniversary? And she knew. He didn't know. Right. And, like, you go, well, you know, when's the date or something like that? And he said March 6th. She goes, seven. And, <laughs> I remember and, that. And you were just like, and you made the nod, and you got off stage. Because, <laughs> in the, like, you were like, there's nowhere else to go. You know what yeah. I mean? Because they've already, because of the crowd work, created the ultimate punchline on Mm -hmm. their own so you you just took a bow basically and left and it was knowing when to leave gracefully because it wasn't gonna get any better than that and so but i love that like crowd work is really hard like it's very scary to me i've talked to comedians who welcome hecklers they want that you know i've talked to comedians who have the same fear as me the first time i was heckled ruined the rest of my Uh, set because i was just thrown off and all the lady said to me was chicken Mm. And it threw me off. Yeah. And at that point, I was just like, oh, I can handle this if I get heckled. And I do what you teach, you know. I, we're giving away all the secrets. But, right. But, like, you, I do what you teach. I'm not going to say what it is. And it works. Yeah. yeah. It works. It works. So I guess what I'm saying is take the workshop. You've got to come out and do it. Yeah, Dean, thank you so much. Like, this wasn't the traditional podcast that I usually do, but, like, oh. I love your stories. Okay. I love listening to you, and uh, your advice is so good. And, like, we keep saying, like, you got to come out and do the, the thing. The next one is February 27th, right?
1: Yeah, it's Monday nights from 6 to 9.30. Yeah. We may run a few minutes over, but it's for six weeks. And then when you're done, you'll do a showcase here at the Improv, usually on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. You know, I, if you do what I say, hopefully you'll write 8 to 10 <laughs> minutes. So you'll have plenty if you decide you want to do this after that night and go out there. You'll have you'll have an act to, you know, build off of. And again my, my calling card is well, Paul Varghese and Ducky. You know, <laughs> people who took it.
0: Um, I'm, not, I'm not even not even close. <laughs> uh, well, I also say you
1: know the improv wouldn't let me teach here unless they believed in it. You know, yeah. and if you the promo video I put out is uh, the manager saying, "Hey, you know, come see the class." So um, enough promotion. Dean Lewis at AOL.com. There you go. There you go. Simple enough. I have another one, but I know AOL is so old, well, but it still works. Dean Lewis at AOL.com. Easy to remember. Let me know, and I'll tell you the pricing. And you know, you also get the workbook, and I also do a private with you. You'll get an hour session with me, and. Um where we can talk just about your your stuff and uh, the showcase. It's worth it. Uh, it's fun. Even if you decide just to, I always want to try it. I think it's a great way to just try it. And again. so
0: many people are afraid to dip their toe into that. So many people are afraid to take the first two steps up to the stage. You're yeah. going to teach them how to do that. And it's my biggest fear was being up here. Yeah. And once I got up here and the lights were so bright and mm-hmm. I was fine, I was like, why was I scared? Like, yeah. this is this is cake. Like, just do it, you know. I do want to ask before we go. Do you ever get nervous? Or is oh, still, gone? to this day. Do yeah. you really? Yeah,
1: still to this day, especially okay. if I'm getting paid a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, you're that audience's night. You're their corporate thing. You're their thing. And, you know, it's also I think you represent the club and, and all that other kind of stuff. But not like I used to. The, the shaking microphone is mm-hmm. long gone. But then once I get the first laugh, it all goes away. You know, it usually once in a while it doesn't go exactly the way I want it. Like I just did this show a week ago at a place, uh, The Hub in Allen. And it's just not a room for stand-up because it's like a ten-thousand-square-foot area. Half the people are there to see the comedy show, and the other half are watching sports and drinking. Yeah. And there was a dog was barking during someone's set because they can bring families. And yeah, it was really it was a long twenty-five minutes. I had to do, uh, and they set the audience too far back. And but the guy putting together Lindell, he's great. He really wants to do it. It's just it's not the best venue. Mm. Um, so what I'm saying is, there's still bad set, but it's just like I was like, okay, it's just you know this is situation thirteen four. Yeah, here we go. That's why you got to get a lot of. We got to get you up more, man. You got to get up there. Yeah. I know you got a bunch going on, but it
0: will be awesome.
1: Get yeah. up and out, and you're, you know, after you're done it for a while, you look back on, you're like, I'm so glad I decided to drive, drive in that rainy weather. I'm so bad, glad I went up in that crappy room. I'm so glad because you, you just, uh, it's a, it's not a. Sprint, it's a marathon. And you're funny, man. I want to see you get up there. Oh, well, we'll see. Okay.
0: Uh, (laughs) No, I'll get up. I'll get up. All right, Dean, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, man. thanks for everyone listening to my ramblings. I love everybody.
0: No, it was awesome. It was awesome. With that said, support local comedy in any way, shape, or form that you can. And we will see you on the next one. And there it is! Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you enjoyed it, please head over to ImprovTX.com to check out all our upcoming shows at the Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio clubs. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the other podcasts on the ImprovTX Comedy Network. We have The Act Out, from open mics to the big stage, comedians tell us the story they've made. Where I talk to comedians from all over and chat about their journey this far. Also, check out the Black Dog Retro Arcade Podcast. Straight from the arcade, we talk about how our favorite games were made that's right we're talking all that video game goodness and finally we have quacking up a storytelling podcast where we pick suggestions from a hat and tell stories based upon them once again thank you so much for listening please check out our social media all links in the description and with that we'll see you on the next one